Goedemorgen. Goedemorgen. <laughs> hello everyone. Hello, hello. Brian. Hi. Brian, how are you, man? Long I'm time good. no see. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, yeah. It's been a while, yeah. Last time I saw you was was um, actually when we worked here, right? Oh, we had we had two sessions. I think um, after the second session, we might have done a. Did we do May Day together after that? Maybe one gig. Oh after? yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. So yeah, how have you been, man? Uh, I've been good. I mean, it was like a pretty uh, dramatic year so far, uh, good <laughs> and bad. You know. Like yeah. Every well, every. Yeah. As at least you're looking very sharp with those uh, glasses. It's my new look. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, we've got Dave joining us from uh, Dave Amsterdam. Is not yeah. There's no no competition. Uh, sorry, Dave. <laughs> Hello. Hey, how are you, man? I'm good. This uh, it's been a great um, and interesting year, actually. Um, but yeah. Um, Finally got my butt in the studio after the last few months and uh, dropped all the um, fatigue from 30 years of touring. And, yeah, I mean, it's really, really good and it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invite. Um, and looking, to forward to, looking forward to tonight and discussing nerdy things. Yeah, yeah. So has it been, um, you say, a welcome break from 30 years of touring? Have you, have you been... Um, uh finding more energy to to get into into the studio and to do other things and stuff yeah um uh, i think a lot of us didn't even recognize it or didn't want to recognize it but for those of us that have been touring for so long it had been exhausting and it was mm. just a roller coaster that kept going kept going kept going and uh i have to admit like for the first i think four or five months i was just enjoying the unseasonable good weather that the Netherlands were having at the time and just uh, getting free vitamin D. And then uh, started working in the studio, working on uh, different projects, uh, classical projects uh, with a violinist uh, called Mathilde Marcel. Uh, oh, okay. And we did a program in Paris uh, called Le Grand Echecire, which, uh, as you can hear, my accent in French is certainly better than Dutch, um, <laughs> which is a 50-year-old program, almost. Um, and uh, it's the first time they've actually, to my knowledge, in, invited an electronic artist. So, um, and that was because of the classical piece that we did in Charles de Gaulle the year before. And so we did that. And me and Mathilde have been working in Amsterdam uh, for a couple of months now. So, yeah, it's been uh, très intéressant. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that sounds very exciting. Well, I'm 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 very curious how um, how that all came together. But we'll get back to that after I introduce um, Jess Black Lotus, looking very pink today. Hi, nice <laughs> to meet you. How are you? Joining us, joining us from Berlin, right? Yeah. Cool. I'm what quite good. Thanks. Thanks. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. Uh, what have you been up to? Uh well, I was at the studio quite a while. <laughs> So I was, um, yeah, just producing new music and improving some skills and learning some new stuff. Yeah, using the free time. <laughs> what did you learn? Uh, well, actually, I was uh, improving my vinyl skills, to be honest, because when I was uh, touring last year, uh, when I had free time, I would most probably produce. 
so now it was just a time to use to yeah to dig to uh, i just bought some new vinyl here so yeah just trying oh, nice. to improve that okay sounds great and you are in your studio right now is this your yeah. um yeah okay so you you have your your dj setup and your music making gear all collected in one place yeah you can see my dj setup here a little bit it's my turntable and my cdjs and another turntable here um, my producing stuff is at this wall so you cannot see it because it's <laughs> from there okay cool um yeah so um i was actually uh um um i did some checking and researching um and everything and i bumped on uh, stumbled upon this old video from from you dave in um i think it was six uh, seven or eight years old when you were um in the studio um producing a track and i quite enjoyed the watching that one uh, and what i noticed is that you are really really obsessed about meters and and uh <laughs> what is that about is it making you feel more uh, confident in in uh, what you're hearing if you can actually see what's going on i have to admit i think it was a sort of transitional phase where i was used to a lot more hardware uh, with a lot more visual feedback uh, than i was getting so yes i was heavily into my waves duro meters um, um but my mac situation has changed because at that point it was a mac pro um 2012 so like the old cheese grater and i could run three screens off it and i've now got the new mac pro and i went down to one screen um so i don't have so many meters but at the same time i do have like a physical uh trusty dk audio um real meter like a physical thing and mm. i use that for like a stereo uh, ganometer and fast Fourier transformation um, and just to get a feel and sometimes to see the second, third and fifth harmonics actually in action, if I'm doing precisely queuing to see where I'm zoning in on. Um, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was slightly heavily into meters at that time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering because I, when I'm producing something, I, I never really pay attention to those things, you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, I'm just, you know, uh, basically just getting it out. And and um, I'll deal with uh, with some of that stuff in w when I know I need I need to. But other than that, you know, if uh, uh, I, I never check things visually, I, um, to be honest. But um, I get a lot of people here in the studio who are, um, you know, when I when you sit down with them, first thing they do is you know go to things like EQs and roll off like thirty hertz and below, and you know before they have uh, go into the um into the sort of the musical part you know just get all the technical things sorted out and i i, I must admit i'm just too lazy to uh, to get into that you know i want to i want to hear things and and um, um i don't approach know. It from from a different mm -hmm. angle though because we probably approach it from different angles because i get the feeling that you really are into keyboards for example and uh other things like that and i never was into keyboards i was much more into engineering and mm. So that's that's my thing. That's where I get really excited about. I mean, for a lot of people, I think the end, making the track at the very, very end, making everything make sense is where, you know, when I was teaching SAE, that's when they get really frustrated and flustered and confused. Mm. Um, so I would actually, uh, I, I, I love making the end part where everything makes sense. So I think engineering, I come from it really from an engineering perspective more than than keyboards. 
Yeah. Well, you call it keyboards. I actually, I'm not a poly guy. I don't really like keyboards and I don't even play keyboards, but uh, oh. yeah, I do. I do like, you know, I, I, I love synths, you know, mostly mono right. synths though. Um, right. But, but yeah, yeah. My, my work, work method is probably the last, well, it's always been like that, but I've always recorded my tracks live, you know, like uh, uh, either making a song structure in in uh, sort of mpc style by chaining patterns you know or or just playing the whole thing out uh, live and then just make the arrangement live and then just sort of clean up things and and which you know. means you can't do macro analysis because everything is well i've i've done it but you know it's it's uh, i really admire people who can you know because um uh, but i just don't have the patience for it you know what i mean it's um it's like um yeah, yeah, it's this uh, process that is, um, uh, it's a very technical process. And, um, you know, I just get impatient when, I, <laughs> when I'm dealing with that, with that stuff, you know. But, uh, but again, you know, I admire people who can you know, and, and who are sort of getting I into the... Really sexy. I find it so yeah. sexy. The whole part <laughs> is just so sexy, getting everything to really mathematical. Makes you feel like a scientist or something. Yeah, actually, that's true, because if you remember back to the old days, we'd be like, we'd be the only idiots that had computers, really. Um, mm. You know, most people would have an analog phone which glowed green with the buttons, and maybe if you press it enough times, you could send an SMS if you were lucky. And we were sitting with computers feeling like scientists. And I, I think it just comes from that, just that whole thing of being in, in a, a really cool room with lots of things actually physically happening with machines. And I, I just love that whole engineering part. It's just the most... Uh, it's just it's like a symphony it's just beautiful mm. yeah it makes sense um but everyone yeah, has different ways yeah of course of course yeah but uh, you know the thing is um uh, uh working with hardware for me what 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 the, um, the 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 good thing for me is that um it is sort of uh, creating things in the moment rather than uh, spending lots of time repeating, listening on repeat to things and sort of uh, honing in on on details. Um, yeah. And I just, you know, it's sort of like like DJing, you know what I mean? If you're DJing, you are basically in the moment and you're just going with whatever is happening in real time. And yeah. um, I like the feeling of um, when you're doing something in real time, uh, your perception of time kind of changes you know you are you are you know sort of it's sort of like it slows down or something you know you are more sort of focused on 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 the moment and in the zone and something something like that and it's uh that's where i feel most comfortable you know when things are just happening and when i can react to things that are are happening and so, uh, question. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> if um if you go back in time um, one of my favorite all-time classic tracks within techno is yours, which is actually Rise. For me, it's it's absolutely timeless. It's such a beautiful, constructed piece of music, and, and it epitomizes 90s techno, but it's also timeless and still works now. Did you do Rise in that same format of just in one go or yeah. like just, wow. Actually, I yeah, I was cleaning. I was cleaning up my uh, my uh, dead archive uh, with the help of uh, my friend Fritz here in the studio, um, and I found two other versions which have a different arrangement, um, and they they have a slightly. Sorry, 
Did you cut digitally after that, or was that before digital editing? No, they they, they were. Yeah, I mean, the the the, the process then was just um, have everything uh, split out on a on a mixing desk, and then just fade in and fade out stuff and mute and unmute like dub style, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that was how, how the track was arranged. There was never arrangement uh, which was linear. It was basically just a loop. That's why it sounds like it is a, it's, it is a loop, like I think a 32-bar loop or something, and and, and wow. just keep adding stuff and taking stuff away. Uh, but uh, yeah, there are two different versions of which I chose the one that I eventually released, but they were all recorded in, in real time. Yeah, so the I think the other one I dismissed because they were too long, you know, they were just too long. I... I I remember when I recorded the the track, I spent like the, the evening writing the parts and then I mixed it down or recorded it um, when the sun was coming up. <laughs> so by that time, you know, things become too lengthy and too sort of uh, spun out. So I, I chose the, the, the shortest one. But you didn't do any post-editing? No, 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 no not oh, even oh. mixing. It was, it was sort of in real time, yeah. yeah. Just, uh, um, anyway, so... Um, so is is can, can how how does it work for you, Brian? Because I know you are very much uh, an in the box writing tracks, arranging tracks uh, in 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 a linear on a timeline kind of vibe, right? Is that yes. that's how you? Yeah, yeah. I like I write with a song format. I'm I'm all about you know classic song structure. So verse, chorus, verse, chorus, you know, bridge, middle eight breakdown, whatever. But I have to say, um, working with you is kind of opened my eyes because I, I'm not a jammy guy. I don't go in the studio and just jam. I like, I go in the studio and I have an idea what I want to produce. I have a, like a riff in my head, something I heard in the radio, something I want to, I want to copy. I'll go in the studio with an idea before I don't just go in and jam. But what I learned from working with you was it kind of opened me up to just, just this whole world of just jamming live and then finding parts and then, I mean, we did we did some editing after, but everything we did was pretty much live, which is goes goes against everything that I believe in. So, and yet the stuff that we did that that we did together was sounds very strong struct, song structure ish. It, it sounds like we <laughs> we knew what we were doing. What we yeah. we, planned, we planned we planned the arrangement, which we didn't. But no, there's definitely yeah. an arrangement that I, I that I think is missing. When people jam. I want to hear a verse. I want to hear dynamics. And if you don't define a verse and a chorus or it just all goes forever. So that's the only thing I, that's the thing I always try to do is have the dynamic between loud and heavy every 16 bars. So. Right. So, so do you, um, do you structure things in advance and then sort of filling in the blanks to, or I'll start with like a loop, like a 16 bar loop and I'll add all the parts and then I'll, copy it i'll lay out the arrangement in five minutes and then i'll just mute mm -hmm. stuff and i'll just find uh what could be a verse what could be a chorus what could be a bridge and then some additive sounds but basically writing on a 32 bar loop is many sounds that i think go together and then at, after that doing an arrangement maybe the next day you know mm. so it's two it's two steps for me it's not one it's two different processes the writing right. part and then the arrangement part and then if I'm inspired, I'll do a vocal or something. But um, yeah, I guess when you do vocals in in your music, then you you automatically end up with an arrangement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A linear arrangement. Yeah, yeah. So, 
And also, I, I've been I've been limiting myself to about eight channels of audio because I, I'm a, I'm always been a minimalist. But if I can make a song really speak with eight channels, I'm really happy because then I think every instrument has something to say. But once you have like forty sounds going on, I feel like maybe the song itself is is getting lost. So I'm always pulling myself back and. That's that's called the British School of Recording, Brian. Is it? Uh, uh, yeah, there's there's different schools of recording. It's like the British School of Recording, the American School of Recording. And the British School of Recording dates back to like the 50s and 60s because we were still post-war and poor, something which is going to happen right. after another political thing that we can't talk about. Um, <laughs> and then um, because in those days they could only record, say, like an eight-channel um, right. uh, uh, mixing recorder. And in America, they would have 16 or even 24. And then they would then make all the decisions later on and say, we can fix it in the mix and give it to the mixing engineer. Right. Whereas British people, because they only had like eight channels, would then have to go, we have to make decisions now and then work on those decisions to progress through the song. And that's, it's, it's quite good to limit yourself. Um, in, yeah, that's something now. that comes up, yeah, it comes up every time we, we have these chats, you know, like every artist finds ways to, to, uh, not get lost in in the infinite amount of possibilities and finds their own way of of limiting yeah. uh, themselves to you know to tell the story basically because that's really what you're doing right. Yeah, I mean yeah. some of the best records are made on eight eight tracks, sixteen tracks maybe, but or four tracks even sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Jess, how how do you work? Uh, quite similar. Um, I record everything live and then edit everything in Ableton. And then analog mastering at the end. Am I allowed to drink? Is that yeah, Thanks, please do. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. So, Thanks. so you're saying you're you're uh, recording hardware or? Uh, yeah, so I would uh, record analogically with some hardware, with some machines, and like you, like I'll just record the whole live jam, mix everything live um, in real time, and at the end I would just make some small edits, sometimes bigger edits, depends. Uh, in Ableton, and then I would just um, master it analogically if it's possible. Do you um, go down to two tracks of audio and then edit, or do you actually have stems that you can edit? Uh, it depends, but mostly I have more tracks than two. No, but when you've actually done your jam uh, with all the machines, do you record into mm -hmm. two tracks and then do an edit of that, or do you actually record everything separately and then edit separately, from that? Separately, separately because I use a lot of effects and it would be just too messy. So yeah, you, you, you multi-tracking everything so you can still, yeah, yeah, even, yeah. even though it's just a live jam, you can still mute stuff or, or yeah. you know, get rid of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't like to limit myself. So try yeah. to keep all the oh, it, is, it is, it is a form of limitation because you, you assign yourself to record something in real time. You know, that's a, that is a limitation by itself, I guess. Yeah. I just mean, in the, like when I record it after that, I just don't limit myself in using effects and everything because oh, it's yeah. multi-tracked. So I can still have all the more possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of hardware do you have lying around there? Uh, right now it's a uh, Dave Smith Tetra at TB303. I have some of the Roland boutique stuff like the TR09, the TR8, uh, but I mostly use the TB303 to be honest. And sometimes the dark energy, but on rare occasions. Okay, cool. And you say you you um, you master it? Do you is that some is you master it all the, all the way for 
uh, use on for release, or do you give it to a second pair of ears once you once you're done with it? Uh, I do my digital mastering myself, but for the like touch up, I give this to uh, Florian Meindl. Oh, and okay. He yeah. does everything because I don't even have the capacity to mm. uh, to master because he does this for so many years. He has all this hardware, so it's just plain impossible yeah. to do it myself. <laughs> He's a nice guy. Yeah, yeah, great, like great, uh, great quality as well. The masterings are just really good. So. Hiroko is asking uh, <laughs> no. if that's Jarvis. <laughs> well, actually, no. Maybe, I gotta, maybe she doesn't know who I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm talking here. <laughs> I was afraid Anyone she would join. She, she's nothing but trouble, that woman. Anyone record still to analog tape here? Hiroko is asking. Oh, those are fun days. Two-inch tape, that's before we got into digital. It was all two-inch tape. That's probably... Uh, Azimuth misalignment, jumpers for goalposts. <laughs> Dave, did you ever get into cutting the two-inch tape, doing edits like that? My dad did. Okay. Uh, my dad actually had reel-to-reel -reel and the cutting block, and I still remember the smell of chalk uh, yeah. on the cutting block. Um, uh, my first records were recorded to reel-to-reel. Um, -reel. I had a really interesting conversation when I was teaching at SAE, I think, two years ago. Yeah, uh, I always ask students what what things are because I think they need to know what they're using plugins for and what they how they develop to where they get to now. And I said, does anyone know what reel to reel is? And a really sweet young Australian uh, guy, really young actually, he, he, his parents allowed him to be out of the country to learn. And he went, yeah, it's something that's real that's going to something that's real. And I thought <laughs> that's really sweet. <laughs> Um, because yeah. you know, every, every, every lesson I did, does anyone remember cassettes and the numbers that go up, the hands go up as less and less, less and, less. and less. Yeah. Um, but I, I did have a reel to reel tape machine. Um, when I first started, I bought a, a secondhand two track, um, yeah. from, from Akai. And I have to be honest, it, the amount of headroom, even something like that had had compared to anything else was like 20 DB extra headroom. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Um, but I don't record to analog tape for ages now. On the last uh, album, Desecration of Desire, I was thinking of actually having it put to tape and then half-speed mastering. Um, but actually, to be fair, the half-speed mastering did the job anyway of, of uh, giving that warmth. Um, but I do use something which I've had for quite some time, which is about 23 years old now, which is a Crane Song HEDDD ahead, uh, yeah. which is a harmonic distortion device, which actually... Um, gives second, third, and fifth harmonic distortion in a way that the tape machine might do. This is obviously before plugins, but I have to be honest: for a twenty-year-old machine, it does add some of that warmth and weird stuff. But sometimes I play with plugins on 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 waves and fuck around with the. Uh, am I allowed to swear, Joachim? I can't remember. Is that of course okay? you can. Yeah, yeah okay. sure. Um, and 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 play around with the wow and flutter. Um, uh, as if I was in some sort of grunge group. Um, and you can do some really interesting stuff with the Wow Flutter because you can automate it. I know that's not going to be something that's Joachim's favorite of spending time drawing a line, um, but I'm sure you can find a software knob that you could do it. Um, and actually drawing lines of Wow and Flutter, so actually you can actually have it modulate with the music in a really, really interesting way. And then I found another plugin from... Would you would you do that on a, on a master or as an individual, on an individual, individual. track? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'd, cool. I'd, I'd, I'd add uh, triad and pentode on a master, 
mm-hmm. but not uh, do that. On the, not unless it's like a track that I want to have that weird effect. But there's another uh, thing which I've always wanted because some of my first tracks were mastered ca- to cassette. Um, and there is something to be said about the sound of cassette. And there's uh, a guy called Jesus who has a uh, plug-in place in Spain called Waves Factory, and he came up with this cassette plug-in. And it's really brilliant, actually, because sometimes you're working on – because all my synth, uh, synths are soft synths. I know that's probably sacrilege for everyone that's watching here, but all my outboard is analog, so everything comes out and actually goes through analog channels anyway. Um, and I sometimes use that on some soft synths. Or there's another thing which is called Samplex, uh, where you can change the bit rate. And I used to work a lot with on Sonic uh, samplers, and they strangely had a 13-bit bit rate that really sounded crunchy but organic. And I would use sometimes different types of various saturation to get that analog tape effect in, in a short time. So. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, tape is, is, is wonderful, but it's also very limited, you know. Um, mm. you, uh, you, like you said, you have a lot of headroom to play with. So if you if you would just record something in a very conservative level it'll sound totally different with with every um added sort of db if you you know you can go from from just a really nice uh uh slightly tape sounding stuff to to really compressed uh which makes the the highs kind of um you know smear out and 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 the bass more full and everything so there's a lot of um settings in between that you can that you can use i I haven't actually mastered things to tapes. I've done one project here with um, Phil Kieran, and we were doing, uh, yeah, we were do- we were in the sort of electroacoustic uh, mood, you know, like using s- objects to make sounds and stuff like that. And um, and at some point, uh, I've got one guitar lying around here, and we were doing, uh, we could both play two chords, so we did a three chord, <laughs> three chord uh-huh. loop. Or something, you know, just a very basic thing, and and just kept running the guitar through different things, and just kept stacking, you know, different uh, sounding layers, basically. And we, you know, it felt all punky and and you know, just uh, really rough, and it became all like a wall of sound. And then we were like, man, all these layers, and it sounds really, uh, you know, vibey now. Let's just do it the old school way and just record straight to real to real. And uh, and we did that. So we did the the live mixing on the board, and you know, just changing volumes and EQs a little bit along the uh, along the track. And and that was one that was um, yeah committed straight to tape without anything, any chance of doing anything afterwards. You know, which was a sometimes yeah. that's a great feeling. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just uh, go for it. And, and spend money on the tape as well. So it's it's a double commitment. It's like you have to spend a lot of money on the actual analog tape. So you're committing to it financially, which is difficult, I think, for younger generations to understand about that financial commitment of various different stages of production. Mm. So you'd have to buy that, and then, boom, it's there. Phil's yeah. incredibly talented. I mean, seriously, incredibly talented. But I'll tell you a funny story about Phil. Legend has it in Belfast that he used to have a bell in his studio that he used to ring, and his mum used to bring him dinner. And this was only, <laughs> this was only oh. a few years ago. That's that's a really good feature in any studio. <laughs> ring, ring your mom for dinner. Amazing. <laughs> well, don't blame him, right? <laughs> no, but it's cool that that um, uh, that that kind of way uh, that really appeals to me. You know, just because in computers you can just keep postponing your decisions, and I I just like situations where I'm I'm put on the spot. Okay, are we going this way or that way? And then just do it and and just 
commit with it, you know, commit to it. Commitment like is so process. important. Yeah. Commitment is so important. It's, it's commitment, commitment, commitment. If you commit to doing something, then you can make another decision afterwards and adapt to it. And if you leave everything to be processed later on, then you're left in a fluster because you have no clue. Because yeah, you have so, so, so how, do, how do you deal with that when when you're using exclusive when you're working exclusively in the box? Because um, uh, I mean, I'm again, you know, I admire people who can. So there's nothing wrong with it. Uh, it's just that I find myself at some point only doing very small increments and very small changes that don't really uh, contribute to the end result as much as um, you know, like the hours spent on something. Uh, minute and and you know very small detail. Uh, I would rather spend that on starting something new. You know what I mean? That's how impatient I am. <laughs> are you asking me? Or, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm asking you because you 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 are obviously a, a big fan of working in the box and getting to that engineering uh, mode and and just tweak until you're um, happy with it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I. I, I First of all, I also admire the freedom that you have. And actually also working with someone that's not in the analog realm because uh, a violin is an instrument, not an analog instrument, it's an instrument. Working with someone that doesn't need electricity can actually just set up their violin and then boom, straight into it is, you can be jealous of that because it's so liberating. Mm. It's the same thing as someone that can just step up to a piano and do something. And then when I see what you guys can do, uh, and people that actually can jam and not actually just jam, but actually make sense of it. So it's not some sort of weird, no story thing. And obviously that takes a long time to get. I admire that. But with, with studio, I do work in the box, um, but I also work outside the box. So what happens is that all my writing is in the box and I'm so used to sequences because I've been using um, uh, Logic since it was uh, Notator when it was uh, bef like in the 80s. Mm. I was using even a BBC B computer with Umi uh, way back when, which I think Vince Clark used to use. Um, and then I use Cubase. And so I'm so used to having the computer as the central hub of writing and obviously not being able to actually sit and play a piano or anything like that. But it's the only option that was available to me, really, unless I wanted to increase, increase my playing uh, ability. Um, so I write everything in there. And now with Logic uh, X, it's it's been my go-to for so many years. It's so reliable, fantastically flexible. Um, the layering that you can do, the flourishes that you can add that actually have a space to breathe, that you can just drop an EQ out just to allow another sound in. It's 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 amazing to do that. Um, and so then at, everything, what, at what point do you think, okay, I'm going to commit to this? Um, I commit to everything instantly. So I'll oh, probably okay. be like, I'll probably be like uh, Jess having loads of ideas and then I'll be like Brian and having a structure from the get-go and then you do that muting game, which sometimes I still try and play the game of beat the cursor before it gets there and mute, mute, right. mute, mute, mute to try and make some structure of it. Then when you've got a structure, you work out what's going on. Then you can then, then you start committing to everything. So you start committing to the engineering decisions that you've done with regards to EQ um, everything then gets shipped out to a different compressor. Um, everything then goes into a mixing desk. So it goes in the analog realm. And then I record it down through EQ, um, uh, through the, the head, the Crane Song head, and it comes back into Wavelab Steinberg, uh, Steinberg Wavelab. And then I record, that's the commitment. And then it's done. Uh, and then I, I also do pre-mastering and mastering as well. 
Okay, so so basically you end up with a stereo track. Um, yes. Yeah. Okay. So you don't you don't mix in the box in in such a way that you can reopen it and 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 keep tweaking. There's there is a moment where you think, okay, this is this is it you now. Yeah, of course. Yeah, okay. so it's, re it's really, really important yeah, because sense. otherwise you're lost, yeah. lost in space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your time gets, uh, you know, it's just uh, yeah. evaporates, I guess. Yeah. And you make good decisions. Even if you made a bad decision on, on printing a sound, uh, like in a track, you can still change it and then use it in some other ways. And then you make decisions on top of that. So everything becomes really organic in the way that it grows. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've worked with Brian actually, and we do work in, in, in a similar way. Actually, we do work to a structured thing and I could never be like Brian or like Steve or like surgeon and come into your studio and you go, let's jam. I'll be like, no, I, I can't do that. Uh, it's not my, my discipline. I would be absolutely stage fright to be in that situation. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> but, but, the, but the reason why Dave and I don't use uh, Ableton it's because apparently Ableton only works in small Berlin apartments. It just <laughs> doesn't have a, the same. I, I love Ableton, though. I, I got to admit, I, I'm also a Logic Audio diehard since forever, since I Cubase before that, I think. But I love Logic Audio, and I, I, I think it's because I, it's it's just built on the the linear arrangement. But um, yeah. the sound, the sound, is just for me a little bit more uh, crisp. More, not crisp, maybe more dynamic in the, the highs and lows than Ableton. Um, it's just something I got used to. And then like um, the ES2 monosynth inside of Logic, I make all, not all, but I make a lot of my sounds on that from scratch. And um, you really can't really tell the difference between that and analog. It, I mean, modular stuff. It sounds maybe even more warm and wild. So that's why I'm, I'm in logic because I, I haven't run out of ideas yet. I'm not run out of like options. And when I run out of those options, then I'll go downstairs and grab a keyboard or I got, I got like a lunch box with modulars, but um, I really like uh, comfortable with logic. But then when I saw Yoakum working with Ableton, I, under, I understand the appeal. It seems to be a bit more intuitive and, and quicker to get ideas going. Well, you know, it's uh, I I I would say that I'm I'm using just a uh, I'm just scratching the surface with Ableton, and it could be yeah. it could be anything really. It's just uh, I'm using it more or less like like Jazz does as a, a tape recorder, you know, like a multi-track recorder, right? Because all the sources are. Um, Yes, uh, hardware. Hardware, hardware. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yes. I've done it. You know, I've done I've done entire productions in Logic. I've done entire productions in Ableton. Um, before that, I used Cubase. You know, on on the Atari. And before that, I had hardware sequencers. So you know, I'm used to a lot of different ways of doing things. But um, uh, yeah, I, for a while, I was I was completely in the box, and it just everything just took longer. It was it wasn't really my workflow you know what i mean and yeah, yeah. i did get stuff stuff done you know in eventually i got there but um yeah it's just um i'm more about the immediacy of things you know um i always you can, take it, you can take it straight on the road in that format i can't so you actually already have the format where you can go okay well we can now actually perform this um mm -hmm. which is i think is something which you live and breathe for mm -hmm. yes um, 
did you always use Ableton? Did you start off with Ableton or? Well, I tried Logic first, but then I switched to Ableton. Any reason why? Um, I guess because everyone was using it. So it was because I was just starting. I had no, actually no clue what I was doing. Uh, it was for easier for me just to, to get a glimpse of what I'm doing because all the people would work with and I could just easily, you know, see what they're doing and what the causes and consequences are. And you say that you master your own uh, material uh, for digital. Um, what do you master into? How do you, you mean? What, is there a particular program that you use for mastering? No, I just use fab filters a lot, like the limiters or the compressors and uh, the EQ, and that's quite it, to be honest. And you do that in Ableton as well? Yeah, I do this in Ableton. And do you do that on the output, or do you actually record into two-track and then uh, process it as a separate track on a, on Ableton? No, I process as separate tracks. Right. What was the first um, uh, sequence you ever used, Brian? Uh, I don't know if you remember uh, the Amiga computer, right? Mm -hmm. There's a program called Bars and Pipes. Did anyone use that? I've seen <laughs> it. But, yeah. uh, I've seen it. It's almost like a Donkey Kong, but for Yeah, music. it was. Is it and the tracker? It's a, yeah, it's a MIDI sequencer. I used that for like one album, and then I switched to Cubase um, after that, and then Cubase to Logic. But what I would do is I would have all my songs on Cubase, 24 tracks, go to a studio and then put each track down on two-inch tape on a 24-track separately. Did you have to look it with Simti? Yes. That was horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because we had to do a couple passes, I remember. Yeah, that, that part was hard. But you, <laughs> you get the song where you want it to, and then you, and then you run it to tape. And then from tape, you run it through the mixer, and then you do your, your, your mix. But it's... Um, it's a good mix of having committed to an arrangement, but also getting the feel of a of a live mix that has the parts you like. So it, it was. I thought uh, I thought those days of two inch uh, tape were were fun with computers. I remember Simti. Um, it's one of the reasons why I actually learned how to produce because I actually had my first record out on Excel, and they sent me to a recording studio and I had like two tracks coming out of my sample at the time, so we had to record everything separately, and for some reason the guy had problems recording Simti and it took a whole fucking day of hearing this. <laughs> yeah. And it just drove me up the wall. And then you learn loads of things about it. Like you can only have your hi-hats on track 15 because right. if you have um, your bass drum or anything like that, the bleed through of the high frequencies of Simti will cross talk yeah. over. God, those days, huh? <laughs> there's actually, there's actually a few old, um, House records. I don't know the label. I'm very bad at names, but you can hear the the timecode track running through the music. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's a f <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, hey, Tadeo, our friend is uh, Miguel is here. Somebody using Pro Tools. Nay, but don't. Nope. Well, I use it a lot when I just when I isolate vocals, and I like the way I like the effects and stuff in Pro Tools for um, for producing vocals. What do you and, mean by effects? Uh, the sound. Like, I, I mean, the people I work with, uh, when I record vocals, they have Pro Tools. Um, and it's, I quite like how, uh, the, I like the compressors. Um, I, I, see, I see the appeal of it. But um, it seems to be more, um, lends itself more to live music. But don't you find Logic is more capable? Than, than oh, yeah. I, mean, 
I, I prefer Logic, of course. But Pro Tools does have a, they, a lot of people at Pro Tools also have the hardware um, components. So their, their effects are running through hardware. Right. So, um, and they do have those really high end um, hardware effects. So, so, I can, so I can see the appeal with Pro Tools, but I, for me, it would be more if I was doing a, a live, live band kind of thing. So, so what's your process, Brian? You, you basically you demo your stuff um, in your home studio, and then you um, you take it out. You, you take your laptop or whatever, and you multi-track it and add your vocals in a in a proper vocal booth or something. Is that how it works? I, I do some vocals at home, but when I want to do proper vocals, or if I'm working with like you know real singers, we I definitely uh, prefer um, in a studio, and uh, only because better. Um, sound isolation for vocals and really nice microphones and stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I do all the music at home. I get it 99% where I want it. And then I'll stem it out and um, do add the vocals uh, either at home or somewhere else. And mixing, I mean, I, I'm mixing at home, but again, I prefer uh, doing that in a studio. I don't know. I'm just kind of old school that way. I like to hear it <laughs> loud on big speakers and, you know, Maybe at your, at your studio. You know, I like I like going to people's studios and using their, banging up their speakers. Chris, I, I yeah, but do you have like a reference piece of music so you can understand the acoustics? Yeah, yeah. I I, I always use either um, a Violator or a Pretty Hate Machine, Nine Inch Nails. Those are records I really know sonically, mm -hmm. so I, I I often use those to uh, to get a feel for a for a studio. I use Stevie Wonder or Donald Fagan. Okay. <laughs> Which is probably not expected by most people. <laughs> uh, the Nightfly is a great album, and I've got like um, a DVD audio version of that, which is like phenomenal. Um, it was one of the first albums recorded to digital, and it doesn't sound fragile or brittle at all. Yeah. Who, who here enjoys starting off a track? Starting off a track? Yeah. I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, why not? Brian? I, I don't know. I, I think it's it, it becomes fun once you have an idea that you like. It's like at the beginning it just feels like okay, here's a kick drum. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's put something cool on it. And then once you have like a good bass, uh, a good synth and a good kick drum hop happening, then you're off. Then you're off to the races. Then you can do your I always go like kick drum, synthesizer, closed hat, um, clap or snare. And that's kind of that's a system I that's how I like to write. In that, in that order, but I don't get excited until there's a good synth part, a good bass line. You know? Jess, how do you, how do you start? Do you start with a bass drum or bass line or? Yeah, definitely. Very similar okay. to Black Asteroid. Cool. You're okay. I usually come up with a system, you know, I, I build um, uh, a setup for every project and sometimes the setup stays there for, for a few days or sometimes for weeks. Like there's a, uh, sort of like a jamming island here in the middle. And, um, you know, there's no way I could connect all the gear that, you know, in one sort of fixed setup here. And that would also bore the shit out of me. I, I've had studios where things were set up like that, you know, with patch bays. And, you know, in theory, you could basically connect everything to everything else, but you would never do it because, you know, one synth would be in that part of the room and then you would go and run it through a filter or a pedal, which was over there. And it would just Frankenstein 
completely Frankenstein me out, you know, it was <laughs> terrible. So, and since you're not used, since nobody's capable of using more than, I don't know, uh, eight or 10 sources in, in writing a piece of, of, of music, I decided this was the best way to do it, you know, just to, um, to have everything just on the wall available there for, to take or to pick whenever I want. And then, uh, when I think of a system, I'm sort of, it's like, um, I'm in sort of nerd mode, you know, what would happen if, you know, if I run this through this, or when I connect that to, to this sequencer or that, you know, filter machine, whatever. And, um, because, you know, I mean, individual pieces of gear become so more, much more versatile if you start combining them with others, you know? And, um, I'm, I'm just having a lot of fun thinking about just fantasizing about what would happen if, you know, that's the, that's the fun part for me. And then I come up with the system, I connect it in a certain way. And that's just, that's my start. You know, I just press start and sort of explore the range and see where it can go. And, uh, without an idea at all. And I just, uh, kind of, uh, latch on to whatever I think is interesting that I can get out of it. And that becomes the start of my track. Do you have so, like subconscious dreams where you wake up in the middle of the night and you think, oh, yeah, that will work. And then you remember the next day it's like, yeah, this is going to be like one hell of well, a track. Yeah, maybe not necessarily in my dreams. But, yeah, I do sometimes, you know, when I when I am on a walk, you know, with the dogs or whatever, I think sometimes I think, ah, oh, what if that's something I should try. And then um, sometimes I don't even end up trying it. But it's it's just cool to think about it, you know, just to fantasizing you're using your imagination and sort of um think of what could happen and of course it doesn't happen when you end up actually doing it but it's it's a good starting point you know it's like with 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 making music it's it is just a matter of starting things you know just start some you know in a kind of work kind of way you know just uh you know instead of um, sitting behind a screen or sitting behind a, a piece of hardware and, and try, you know, wait until the, the muse comes, you know, it's just my, my method is just start things, you know, just to, you know, start t twisting knobs and running cables and, and is, that you know, how you fight? is that how you fight writer's block? Do you ever get writer's block? No, I never do. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can have periods where I'm not really getting what I, what I really like to get, you know, but, um, I've actually the last years I've, I've kind of, um, uh, sort of put it out of my head to arrive at a certain sound or a certain result and mm -hmm. just let things happen. And right. you know, whatever happens, happens. And I'm, I'm, I either like what happened or I don't. So, and if I don't, I dismiss it or bin it. And if I like it, I, I finish it and, you know, put it to, get it to final or something, you know? So it's, um, you know, as long as I'm keep creating things and keep trying things out, you know, sometimes something comes along, which I'm happy with, you know, that's just, uh, um, the way it goes. Just you, I mean, uh, do you actually have tracks that you think, Oh shit, that's not going anywhere. And do you save them? Do you ever go back to them? Oh yeah, a hell amount of it. I have so many tracks I started when I was not very skilled. I had all these ideas, but didn't really know how to put them all together in terms of arrangement and sound design and in general. So yeah, right now with every track, I'm getting a little bit better. So I'm thinking of all these 
things and sometimes I get back to them and just get a nice sequence. I record it like a from a three or three jam or something and then use it now with the with all the knowledge I, I gained in the past years. So yeah, I never trash anything, no. So before before we uh, went live, you said you had you spent a lot of time in the studio and you learned a lot of new things. What's the latest things you've um, you've gained knowledge about, or you know, changed your way of working, or that you find out? Mm, well, I would say it was the first time I really had collaborations with people. So it was the first time I really uh, had to make tracks with other people, and this was really challenging because it was obviously the first time. Uh, but it went quite well. It was really, really inspiring to to have this kind of symbiotic uh, feeling, uh, especially because the person is in the same niche and has the same um, mindset when it comes to to the techno we do. Uh, so yeah, it was really nice to learn that to to channel ideas and to have the balance with another person and to make something with another person. Do you feel you you are um, adopting roles when you when you're working with another person, like um, like some with some some collaborations? You know, the one person takes on the role of uh, the the person who sort of uh, makes the rhythms, or you know, is more into sound design part of the thing, or um, is sort of you know you know what I mean? Is it? Yeah, yeah, I completely know what yeah. you mean, and I'm usually better in the rhythms. I would say I'm not so right. well in writing melodies or something. It's, it's something I never done before. Um, so I always try to get the opposite role just to learn it, just to be like in German, in German, we say we jump into the cold water. It's just mm -hmm. to, to be, yeah, to face the thing I never do and be with someone who maybe is better or probably is better than me. Um, yeah, I try to do this. I never stay in the same role. Okay. That's cool. Yeah. I remember I when it's important to have roles sometimes that, define roles or at least have an idea of what kind of role each person plays when you're in a studio situation because it gives you some constraint. Like when I came to your studio, we were jamming and then I just picked up a microphone and then you just took over the music and we took turns and it just it's just nice when like everyone knows their strength or what, what they're gonna what they're gonna add. I kinda like having some quasi defined roles in a studio. I don't know. Yeah, what what I remember from when when we worked together is that um, uh, I would kind of s make a setup with uh, and which produced some kind of sound or basis, and then yeah. you would kind of disappear in the corner behind your laptop and start <laughs> started writing uh, words to whatever uh, yeah beats and things that, that were going on. And yeah. it was funny because sometimes I, I looked around and I saw Brian smirking, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> writing evil lyrics and shit. Yeah. There's some <laughs> evil <laughs> lyrics, yeah. Did you joke at any point? <laughs> I don't think I did. Yeah, I forgot to do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, was, it went quite well because I. Uh, the funny thing is um, I never really use uh, or work with vocalists that much, but um, uh, for some reason... For some reason, when you when you were writing the lyrics, and sometimes I I would see what you were writing, it would actually change the direction of where uh, um, I was taking the sounds at the moment when when right. you know, and uh, and then uh, at the moments where you laid down the vocals, you know, we basically finished the the whole thing together, yeah, and and the structure kind of emerges emerged yeah. in, in in a very natural way. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. So it was quite a quite a fun thing to do. Yeah, and of course sometimes we were 
both um, on the, on the synths and drum machines at the same time. But yeah, um, but the, to have you sort of drop out once in a while and and write the vocals was a uh, was kind of new to me, and it gave gave a quite a good dynamic because I knew you were come up coming up with something, but I couldn't hear it yet. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I never planned on it. I didn't plan on it, but somehow for me, vocals always adds something to music. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you don't yeah. need it, but for me, it just like it just takes it to another dynamic, another like thing happening. Because I, always, I think it's the humanity that yeah electronic music sometimes doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Is that because we grew up with pop music and we're just accustomed to hearing uh, like a voice? It, but it just it's. I'm not sure. I just think it's something that's not quantized uh, unless you really overprocess it. It's something that's from the human soul and it just makes the whole project gel and not be so frigid i think yeah uh, and it adds character and it adds an insight maybe the, the the singer or the performer is um uh you know doing lyrics through metaphors so you don't actually really know what the meaning is so it has right. that di dimension as well of not just being la 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 is it love that you're after blah blah whatever it's something really deep and you don't know what it is it could be someone's personal experience you can you're just left to guess and that's i think something which is really vital to long-standing good music well you know for, for people's voices are we, we are used to hearing voices all our lives you know and it's a very recognizable form of communication and um even though lyrics might be uh, written in such a way that there's that it, you know makes you guessing uh, sometimes what it is about it's still a very uh familiar sound you know of somebody's voice listening to somebody's voice yeah um as opposed to uh vocal less um you know instrumental electronic music there's way more uh left to the imagination of the listener you know they make their own story they make their own associations you know um so there's something to say for both but yeah i do agree that um yeah what i found working with brian um doing vocals um there is a much more um uh community communicative part to to the music all of a sudden you know it's mm -hmm. uh it feels more familiar because you hear somebody doing vocals <laughs> they're yeah. singing to you or speaking to you yeah uh, isn't it uh, psychoacoustically also very relaxing for human because it's the first sound we really hear is the female voice, the voice of yeah. the the voice of the mother. Yeah. I think maybe the relation of that. Hmm. Possibly, yeah, yeah. By the so, way, I'm I'm so, I'm very sorry we we have ignored every question on YouTube so far. <laughs> don't get, don't get discouraged, you know. Keep keep on firing them, but um, you know we were just. Uh, uh, oh, there we go. Let's let's bring this one in from Plenitit. Uh, when you do remixes, do you decide uh, that you want to do a remix of that special track and reach out to the label producer, or do you remix, or do the remix opportunity opportunity come to you? What do we understand the question? Yeah, it's like oh you yeah, yeah okay. Do you decide you what to remix, or are you? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um. I would say I think that's true for all of us, I guess. Um, tell me if it's not, but usually you get asked to do one. Uh, half and half. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Half and okay. half. I mean, um, 
there's there's groups that I like that are not in uh, because I seldom do a techno remix anymore. Um, so there's groups that I like that I'll maybe actually I was I can't tell you who the group is sadly, but I was sitting at the SS Rotterdam uh, in summer uh, in in um, this year, and I got a uh, Instagram message from a label, and actually just started talking to them, found out that the group were fans of mine. And then I thought, fuck it, I'm going to ask because I really like their music. Uh, mm. Okay, if I do a remix, and they were like, we'd love you to do a remix. And I think, I think it's, I think it has to be both because otherwise, then it just becomes more of a commercial endeavor. Um, and I think if you're a real fan of music, and and it's outside of what you're known for, say like techno, um, then you ask. Um, I think it's really, really important. I mean, I did that with, I think, A Place to Bury Strangers, uh, which is like a sort of wall of sound group. Um, I'm not sure about Soft Moon. Brian, you know uh, Soft Moon. Oh, yeah, I love this guy. Yeah, well, I love him. He's great. I'm not sure if – I think, I think I even asked them. And um, Because it's, it's good to be a fan of different types of music um, yeah. and, and have their trust as well. Um, but then I remember, say, when, for example, our, probably all our favorite group here is Depeche Mode, right? I hope, maybe, I'm, I don't know. Uh, and when they asked me, I was like, holy shit, boys, it's Depeche Mode asking me to do a remix. Yeah, yeah. This is like the best feeling in the world ever. And I don't think I've ever been asked to do a remix by anyone that had that whole feeling of like, this is a group that I grew up with when I was a child. Um, not saying that they're very old or anything. I'm just saying I'm very young and uh, really enjoyed their, their music. And then I get to remix them and the vibe that, that came from that was incredible. But uh, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you get asked uh, to do remixes and, and you, you say no because you honestly feel either the track itself is perfect because sometimes it is. Uh, it doesn't need anything added. And I can't, I find it difficult to think about a techno remix now. It's like, what can be added? What's the thing? What's the special source that you're going to bring to this particular track that's going to do something special with it? And with techno, I don't feel that. I don't know. I don't feel like I want to go there anymore for doing remixes. Well, you can, you know, that's, I guess, why, why a lot of remixes, um, yeah, techno artists who are asked to remix other techno artists, um, they basically do an entire other track with one or two yeah. sounds of the original. That's how it usually goes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you feel pressure to, I mean, you say you're, you're a massive fan of the, the Pesh mode when you got asked to do, to do a remix. Did you, uh, did you tell yourself, uh, okay, this has got to be my best one ever. No, no. Um, I just tried <laughs> to do my best one every time I, I do a remix. Um, sure. And I did two different mixes. I did uh, a very slow uh, acoustic mix, which then uh, Fletch told me um, that they used to walk on stage to for a whole tour. It was their walk on stage track. I was like, holy shit, this is like beyond That's my awesome. dreams. Yeah. Beyond my dreams. And actually, Fletch told me that also in Rotterdam. A lot of Rotterdam action going on for an Amsterdam boy tonight. Um, <laughs> and, and I was talking to him backstage, and he and he and he told me that, um, and it, it blew my mind. And the other mix, it really—I just wanted to do a heavy industrial mix, and I just enjoyed doing it. And I think the fact that Depeche Mode was such a big influence on me growing up, I didn't feel any pressure because I already felt, in a way, that they were sonic parents. Does that make mm. sense? Would it sound really cheesy? 
Um, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, sure. Yeah, because the uh, yeah, I, I I think we're roughly the same age. I had the same the same relationship with their music when I when I grew up, and um, I actually did two remixes for them as well. And uh, I just recently discovered the the slower mix, which I never gave to them, and oh, uh, wow. the one yeah, and the the one that. Uh, I ended up giving them was uh, sort of like an industrial drum and bass mix, although they, you know, I guess they were, you know, it was in the time when I was doing lots of techno, but um, it became something completely different. I was happy with it, though. And um, But those but, those old days were amazing because you'd actually have couriers waiting outside your studio. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And then you'd have to wrap the dat up. So you'd only listen to the dat once to make sure because those days dats were really unreliable so you then wind it up backwards and forwards and make sure it was really tight you'd wrap it up in tinfoil because the motorcycle courier would have bleed through from their uh, radio and then sometimes the dat would actually end up at the mastering house to go back. yeah yeah <laughs> 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 you know, all these things and then you had deadlines in those days that actually were really true deadlines it's like yeah well the product needs to be out now um, at this particular moment, we've got the mastering engineer waiting for you. Um, the, the couriers outside, it's it sort of, I didn't enjoy that side of it. Um, mm -hmm. but it, it focus you. Yeah. What I, what I, I mean, these days you, you can download, um, uh, loads of like, uh, outtakes or 24 tracks, you know, like original recordings, um, the way they were recorded to, to, to tape, you know, with all the, all the parts separate, uh, but back then, this was what you know. I, I had a, I've done an, I'd done a few remixes of uh, like that, you know, from sort of poppy bands with with um, where you've got like the whole twenty four tracks split out on a on a dead machine, yeah. on a dead tape. But um, but it still had some uh, quite some magic to it, you know, to hearing you know you know the original song and then you hear all the all the parts individually. Yeah, and, and you're I was I was always like really is this all it is you know right. <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. it's like oh my god it's these these parts are so simple and it's they're, you know they're so yeah 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 and it's like you know uh you know if you put everything together and mix it well it sounds fucking amazing and it's a, it's a real powerful song but you know these these individual parts are usually or very often not really that special, you know, they, with bad, badly, badly, uh, uh, you know, cut samples, you know, with bad tails on them and shit like that, you know, happens all the time. It's crazy. They had so much trust in you as well because they're hey, actually really, they're, they're really giving you their soul in such a basic format. Yeah. And so, I mean, I remember the first time I actually heard Michael Jackson in um, a cappella from, from a tape in a studio next to me. It's like, oh, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds shit. It sounds like someone's scared of a of a rat or a mouse in the studio or something. But then when you put it all together, it just became yeah. this mighty track. Mm. And you know, and I, I did some work with um, New Order and Electronic, and I remember that Bernard was very uh, not happy about the fact that I moved his vocal higher up than he felt comfortable with. Oh yeah, he had all these things going on in those days. That was really really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean. Back in those days as well, when you had um, the stems given to you and you had them in such weird format, uh, it was magic. Thankfully, yeah, thankfully the beginning of the CD, uh, the CD um, um, player, CDR, CDR, yeah. and then you got them there, and then you put them together. And I still didn't have enough capacity in the computer, so I had to sample everything mm. and then put 
everything on a sample map so that all the vocals will be sampled uh, and everything placed on one separate key of each phrase and stuff. Yeah. If you change the BPM, forget it. It's like really complicated <laughs> if you want to keep the origin of the song. And I remember the first time that I actually managed to download a remix to someone was Terence Fixma. And I had to uh, leave the 33.6 kiloboard modem on all night just to send the track and hoping that it didn't stop in the middle. And it's, it took 14 hours, I think, to send Terence the, the remix. Funny, funny old days. <laughs> Sorry, I went on a bit too much. Though. Yeah, good stories. No, but I did the, the, whole, the whole magic of, of hearing uh, um, multi-tracked tracks, you know, of, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, puts things in a perspective that you, uh, that you were, you know, never expected, you know, it's, yeah. um, it's pretty cool. Have you, have you, any of you like uh, Jess or Brian done any remixes like that with uh, where you've got like uh, the whole tape split out and outtakes from, from other people? Uh, that kind of gave you the insight and in how they were made. I, I I did, but honestly, I just took I did a couple of Depeche Mode remixes, and each I just take the vocal, and then because <laughs> that's what you want, you want the vocal, and, and then uh, tried to recreate it in my style. You know, like how would I do the kick drum and the bass line? But but uh, yeah, you want the vocal. That's what that's the magic, and then. Um, The worst part was the last remix I did for them, they had this new rule that you couldn't affect Dave's voice. I had all this distortion oh. and all this crazy dumb stuff going on. And they're like, sorry, we have to ask you for a clean mix also because there's like this new rule that Dave doesn't want any effects on his voice. So the version I, you know, so all the best mixes are the ones that are not released. Like I did like a 12 minute dub and then Chris helped me with that one. And that's the one I play in all my sets, and the people love that. But it's not released because mm. they, they took they took the four minute um, radio remix. So there's that. There's always that stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, just when I just took the voice, and then it's a lot easier to sync up a voice than all this other music and stuff. I did the inverse once. I actually uh, did a remix for Placebo, um, who I really liked, and they did a cover of uh, "Life Is What You Make It." And I thought, well, they're asking me for a remix. Everyone knows this song. So I actually took the vocals completely out. Okay. Um, because it made more sense to me. And I actually released it. And I was really surprised and happy. But uh, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, back to the question about remixes. Um, it's nice to ask someone you really you respect, you know, to, if you can do a remix. It doesn't hurt to ask, you know. Um, if you do a good job, then maybe they'll, they'll, they'll release it. But. It's uh, if you're not asked to do it, there's no there's no harm in you know approaching no, people. I don't think anyone should be shy, especially yeah. if you're a fan of uh, of a group. Um, yeah. Jess, who, who's your who's your biggest uh, most important group uh, that you would love to remix? Group. Yeah. Wow, that's a tricky question. Most most of the musicians are like died. So. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say well, prodigy. Well, dead, musici dead away. musicians count as well. <laughs> okay, prodigy. Yeah, the prodigy. Yeah. So, would you phone up? Would you try and phone up Liam and say, you know, you were just so inspirational to me? Would it be possible to remix one of your new tracks? 
I think rather not. I think if I would would have met him personally and there would have been a chance to maybe it would have, you know, come up as a topic, maybe I would have asked, but otherwise I'm too shy to do that. You should do it. <laughs> well, I think Paula Temple remixed the prodigy, right? Did she? On, I think it was an RNS. Hmm. So I know Didn't there are I think they're up for remix. I think I think I'm right. I'm not 100 percent sure. Stuart mm -hmm. asked a question like, "Who's our favorite bands ever?" Now I'm going to completely go non-electronic, and then oh, I'm going to go. What bands, go have, what bands have influenced you at the beginning of your career? <laughs> what, are, what music are you listening to right now? Okay, and I would say the, I would say the Damned, um, and I saw them actually here in Zandam, which I thought was great for the Damned to be in Zondheim <laughs> and Amsterdam. Um, so I've seen them play a lot over here. I never saw them in the UK play, and I would say The Damned, and I would say Devo, um, and actually broadcasting them live uh, from Sonar on my radio show was uh, an amazing privilege. Um, but it's uh, And John Fox, the, mm -hmm. like the very early uh, people. I mean, John Fox, I don't know if you know much about John. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but let me explain if, if people don't. John was um, part of Ultravox. Um, actually did some of the better Ultravox tracks, I think, in my mind. Could have been in the Sex Pistols, I think. Uh, I interviewed him for my radio show, and he had such a massive, massive history. And he's like the most intelligent person that I've, I think I've ever interviewed. And John Fox, what he did with the Metamatic album, Uh, it shaped me. It's one of the reasons why I call one of my tracks No One's Driving because he did a track called No One's Driving on that. Um, and I think musical influences from when you're growing up are invaluable. I mean, I still listen to The Damned in the gym. Um, still, I think it, I've listened to that album maybe a few thousand times now. Jess, exactly. what about you? What about who was the first bands influencing you? Mm, I really like Linkin Park and Wu-Tang Clan. Oh. Yeah, toch. Huh? <laughs> I said, yeah, toch. All oh, right. I thought you said the Ruttles. I was like, okay, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> Joachim, who's your favorite? Uh, um, well, I mean, um, I'm I'm really bad at names, but I what I can what I can if I if I can sort of reconstruct what I've always liked, it's electronic sounds, you know. So um, even even electronic sounds in in, in pop music, you know. Um, so um, uh, I mean, my dad used to play things like ELO, you know, which which was a very fucking genius. Yeah, absolutely. The songwriting and 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 the production is just fucking amazing. Uh, I, you know, so so that has been um, one of my earliest uh, uh, sort of bands that I got into. But um, I think most of the stuff that I, um, you know, the, I mean, sources of information were rather different than right now. You know, so it was basically radio and and finding finding out about music when when you were record shopping. You know, those were the two main sources, and. Um, Yeah, I've, early on I got I, I I went to import record shops, you know, stuff like that, and you learn about music, um, you know, like early electro, um, sort of late Italo, it sort of crossed over into, you know, from new wave, you know, the poppy side of things. 
I don't know, th there is not really a specific band that, that made a massive impression on me, but the whole um, sort of development of um, electronics in music was something that that really appealed to me. It was I was I'm I'm always been I've always been obsessed by sound. You know, it's the sound that gets me. Not really the lyrics or the the structure. Even you know, it doesn't really matter if uh, if it's slow or hip hoppy or 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 fast or or angry or whatever or coming from a whatever cultural uh, niche. You know, it doesn't really matter as long as the sound appeals to me. Um, so I guess yeah. <laughs> it's a bit vague, I guess, but I, were you sorry. into classical music at all? Classical music? Yeah, later on. Yeah, yeah. I've actually a lot of things that that um, uh, people told me. You know, you should listen to this. If if this is the music you you are making, you should check that out because you know things like Brian Eno. I've I've you know discovered even after I've done ambient tracks. You know, I didn't even know who the guy was. Right. And then I found out about him. You know, um, I think in the early nineties when. Uh, and then you know got into uh, Roxy music and stuff like that you know and I I've never really been into the the yeah the, the cultural thing of surrounding music more than uh, more into the the sound you know sound is the is the thing I go for. Frank Ellis would be important to you. Yeah, I knew of it, but it's it nah, that yeah. I mean, uh, no, not really. I would I would say no, not wow. really. Yeah. Brian? For me, I, there was a record that made me want to make music, and I, I, when I heard Purple Rain when I was a kid, I would, I would dream of being a rock star like Prince. But it wasn't until I discovered Nine Inch Nails that first record is when I was like decided to like get a sequencer and a, and a, and a keyboard and try to make my own music because what I what draw, drew me to that album was it was a mix of hard electronic dance music and rock and roll. So you had guitars and you had synths and the guitars and the synths complemented each other and they didn't cancel each other out. And it was that energy of having songs with guitars and vocals and this really pristine synthesizer sequences going. And that just, that blew my mind. That's mm -hmm. I just, that mixed the two worlds. I was into love and rockets and I was into like, you know, acid house and to, to mix those two types of genres together. That was like, I was sold. So that I guess it was Nine Inch Nails. And that, that led me into Nitzrev, Meepeat Manifesto, uh, Ministry, Fetus. So I, I got into all this industrial music. Um, that's so Brian, do you think that um, Nine Inch Nails, Trent, he sounds a little bit like Seal? I never His even voice. thought yeah. of that. I never even... I'm going to probably never listen to it ever again. I'm going to destroy, I'm going to destroy this for you because if you listen to it, I'm just a copy of a copy of a copy. Yeah, for me, yeah. it sounds like Seal. I never even thought of that. It sounds like you, uh, like, it sounds like Seal. You'll never, un you'll never unhear this now. Okay. <laughs> well, that, uh, I hope it doesn't ruin your uh, Nine Inch Nails experience, uh, Brian. <laughs> yeah, one, one, one band I, I would, uh, Actually, now it, it I kind of recall, you know, the uh, things like Mantronics. I was really into oh, that, you know. He's yeah. a lovely guy. Oh, yeah. I've never met him. I met him Curtis, once. Right? It's, it's Curtis. Yeah. The shit that he did with King of the Beats. And, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I was a massive fan. I mean, I got into music earlier than that, but that just sort of shaped my, my, um, 
that was the moment when I actually started making music and and those were the you know that kind of sound you know the really electronic sort of it it's 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 hip hop but it's I don't think there's anything like it you know there's no other yeah. band sounding like it and, and his uh, stuff it, with Taylor Rock as well right uh yeah yeah breaking bells and things yeah and and there they he became a bit poppy with uh, I think Joy Sims there's a Joy Sims record yeah, but I was I was yeah, yeah, but I was really into the the production style, you know, the yeah. the, the cutting, you know, sort of the re- repeating, stuttering kind of things, and the eight oh eight, and um, yeah, that sound was just made a big impression on me for sure. Because going back to tape, there used to be two guys that used to do incredible tape edits of Mantronics, which were like Chep Nunes and Omar Santana. Yeah, and are, there, are those the Latin Latin Rascals, or are they different people? I thought people? they were until Patrick actually corrected me and said there was someone else, but I always saw them right. as Latin Rascals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my mind, because I think they did tracks like Lisa's Coming and, and other things like that. And and Chet and and Omar, like Omar OO edits were like were ridiculous. I mean, when you hear what they were doing then, and then you hear what Freddie Fresh was then doing as well, you can see how that was all developing. And the tape edit was a real skill. I mean, mm-hmm. it was before the sampler really came in. The sampler just destroyed the need for tape edits. But well, it influenced I- you take a uh, a sample of your own track sometimes and then yeah. you just record it in two tracks and you intersperse it in there with some weird sample edits. It's, yeah. It's I, to be honest, I think the Mentronic mega mixes and stuff like that were yeah. a combination of both, you know, they were both uh, cut up things. Yeah. Who is it? There <laughs> <laughs> were, they were both uh, tape cuts and, and uh, uh, sample techniques, I think as yeah. a combination, I'm, I'm not, I might be mistaken, but that's what it sounds to me. Like it sounds, sounds, sounds really like a, a sequenced sometimes, you know, like a sequence. I'm going to be really nerdy because there was one uh, track that I think Mantronics did. I think it was breaking bells. And because I saved up all my money working in a shoe shop for two drum machines, one of them was a Yamaha RX-21 and the other one was a 21L standing for Latin, mm. uh, I was actually really disappointed with one of the tracks, Mantronics, because it was a preset. It was it was pattern oh. 56. And I was really <laughs> I, thought, I thought, shit, even Mantronics uses a preset. Yeah. I was like, no, this can't be the case. But hey. I thought they were using the Studio 440, the, the sequential uh, sampler. As well, I'm not sure, but the drum machine it was like I remember because it, it was weird. I didn't even know what timbales were. I thought they were sweets or something. Timbales like, and it was like he just used the preset pattern 56, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> I can never yeah. use pattern 56 now because you've used it. So yeah. Another record that, that I I was really into and still am is uh, PSK by Schooly D. It's just nine oh nine fuckload of reverb and, uh, and 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 him rapping a bit stoned and, and sloppy scratching. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think the prodigy really used that drum beat as well, right? I think it's everybody stole that at some point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's a nine oh nine. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It still sounds amazing. I mean, sometimes you get you you remember tracks in your head. You know how when they sounded absolutely big and massive back in the day, and then you hit, listen back now, and they sound like shit. But the PSK track is still fucking yeah. slamming. It's crazy. I'm going to name a track that actually I, I loved when I was at school. Probably none of you know, and that's a track by XTC, and it's called "Making Plans for Nigel." Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no one knows it. I know that. You I know it. I might know it. I'm I'm really bad. You would know it. You would know it. You would know it. You would not be heard it. Yeah. But the bass line and the drums, like I think it's Andy Partridge. 
total yeah. genius. Yeah. Growing up in England at that time was so fortunate because there was so yeah. much amazing production uh, that was going on. And it was sort of techno without being techno is really, really interesting. Um, but making plans for Nigel, apart from having an amazing political intonation uh, with the lyrics about how crappy life could be in England uh, at that time and having such an amazing drum programming. Uh, and I actually remember on TV because you were saying there weren't sources available. There was a record shop on radio, but also there was um, TV programs for young kids in England. And they actually had like a whole thing of going to the XDC's recording studio. It was for like six minutes. It had the same effect on me as seeing cool DJ Herc uh, mm. in that hip hop video. It was inspirational. Yeah. Totally yeah, the limited sources of where you could find things uh, definitely definitely helped, you know, getting uh, make having things making a big impression on you. Uh, there was yeah. this um, hip hop documentary uh, by uh, an early MTV uh, presenter. I, I don't think it was for MTV, but uh, his name was Marcel von Tilt, a Belgian guy, and he made uh, a documentary called uh, Big Fun in the Big Town. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's on YouTube. You should be able to get it somewhere. But it's got like a 16-year-old uh, Schoolie D and it's got like, uh, no, sorry, um, uh, LL Cool J and it's got uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash, you know, and all these all these early hip-hop guys from from New York. And um, um, yeah, just, you know, Roxanne Chante and, you know, all these, in it, and it made such a big impression on me, you know. And I, I know that it did as well on a lot of people uh, my age around that time because everybody I talked to is who is from the same era you know that was the one that got everybody started you know <laughs> it's funny I, I think that was in 86 or 85 or something yeah I think with that cool DJ Herc I wouldn't have wanted to be a DJ <laughs> seriously really seriously because I think when I saw him in his cowboy hat obviously I'm not going to wear a cowboy hat but when I saw him in his cowboy hat in a um, in an open top car with the speakers. Yeah, out of yeah, I know that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I thought, I want to do that. That's He's got exactly decks, in his, decks in his car as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah funny. You, what what hip hop you into, uh, Jess? Apart from Wu Tang. Sorry, what? What hip hop are you into apart from Wu Tang? Oh, a lot. Buster Rhymes, Eminem. Quite a few different things. Uh, from the newer stuff, I'm not having so many favorites. I like some stuff from Drake, but I'm more, more into uh, old school stuff for sure. Yeah, I think it was the 90s were kind of a, a peak for hip hop, especially in America. Mm. I think, I mean, I think the 80s were the best. Or maybe I'm thinking the 80s. Somewhere between yeah. the 80s, it was yeah. like. Uh, yeah, it was late 80s, early 90s, yeah. yeah. It sort of I finished. Hip hop finished with me for, with I think with Tim Dog, and then came back with Ron the Jewels. But I think from eighty one to about ninety two, hip hop yeah. for me that was the golden era. And, yeah, that was amazing. And Tim Dog just destroying NWA was like, yeah. and Cool Mo D destroying LL Cool J, like yeah. those battles. Yeah, no have anymore because everyone's so nice yeah. <laughs> those battles were they were fun yeah. um but uh yeah it's good hip-hop like marley Marl. i mean i think they just produced you on a four track cassette and right. distorted the hell out of a microphone you know yeah. like with biz marquee yeah like, just hell out of a microphone and those techniques were amazing as well yeah. 
Yeah, same is true for early uh, house and acid records. You know, they were very often just uh, on a, on a cassette or or a two track tape machine. Yeah. So we're spending all this time in the studio getting things right, and it can be so uh, simple, right? Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> yeah. It is. It, it does. It does say something about authenticity, though. You yeah. know, if you can get away with something sounding technically completely imperfect, but with lots of character and lots lots of um, authenticity. To be honest, that's to, that's what I'm chasing all the time. You know, wow. something not necessarily crappy sounding, but something that is that sounds as if it's has always supposed to be like that. You know, like a right. like a Polaroid or something. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Something simple, but with character. I find I'm always trying to make the same record just better. Like I'm always trying uh -huh. to get this perfect mix in my head of dub, techno, industrial, pop. I'm just always trying to find this perfect mix. And every time I do an album, I'm just trying to fine tune that. But I'm always trying to make the same record I, I find. Like I'm, I have this idea in my head what a perfect record is. And I is made it more is it modeled after something that already exists or is it, I think, is it yeah like, I, think, like, I think it's based on a few uh influences you know so it's should we get you, really technical huh should we get really technical yeah go for it yeah I let's go technical really, really really nerdy well okay. tell me about your outboard because um i mean um you know this is the knob twiddlers hangout so what the what's the knobs you were <laughs> you're using <laughs> You know, your, your hardware. I still, I, are you still using the distressors? Oh yeah, definitely. Ah, okay. Um, distressors. Uh, I'm not going to tell you everything because I have some secret uh, secret equipment. But uh, distressors, Fatsos, um, SSLGs, Smart Research, um, Avalons. I mean, that's that's my my kink right there in the knob twiddlers hangout. Um, <laughs> is, is compressors. Um, I do like some plug-in compressors, but I never feel that they actually physically change the sound in the same way. It feels like an effect as opposed to a physicality. I don't know if that's my mind playing tricks on me, but it doesn't gel it the same way. There's a few plug-in compressors that I like, uh, notably by Eventide, like Omnipressor. It does something quite special. Um, but you can't compare a plug-in to a real TG. You can't compare a distressor to a real distressor. It just doesn't exist um, at all. So, yeah, I really uh, adore using compressors. But I'll tell you a little secret about my compressors is that I very rarely twiddle those knobs. Um, oh, you've got to say the same setting for, for all your for all the uh, processing. You get to a like point a where you, setting. Yeah. Yeah, you mm. get to a point, and it's, um, I, I wouldn't want a total recall compressor because I don't need that at all. I think as a mastering engineer that makes sense because it's, a different sound coming to you and you're trying to make something unified that makes more sense. But I actually have my compressors. I might twiddle them a little bit, but they will say the same thing. And then I will send source material to them that I know will fit that compressor. And if it doesn't, I'll try another compressor. Yeah. So you choose the right one for the right job, basically. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, lots of, lots of engineers work like that. You know, they just have, they have them all, you know, they have like the whole rack full of compressors and they just jump from one to the other until they find, um, the right one for the right job. Yeah, it's the same thing you're saying earlier on. Like, if you had everything wired up at the same time, you don't want to go over here to do yeah. that. And I think because a lot of compressors exist in, in studios, like loads of them, you don't want to be on your hands and knees away from the stereo center 
adjusting it until you get the right moment. You know what a, a character, a, a particular compressor is, and you know that's what you want from it, and that's what you're going to get. Well, lot, lots of them also actually have a sweet spot. You know, they sound terrible if you overdrive them or if if you if you use them mildly. You just some some there is always uh, an area or a range where they where they just sound the best they can. You know, and yeah, and, exactly. yeah. And I have a mastering compressor, uh, physical compressor as well. And that one I do change because obviously the track needs to, you know, have, yeah. have changed the compressor. It will never work the same setting all the time. So th so then you you finish your track all the way up to the final master, or is there I, something I can I, I can do? Um, right. I do like to give it to another set of ears, as you say, because I think that's vitally important. I think it's really important to work with someone. I, I try to explain this to the students as well: to work with someone, have a good relationship with the mastering engineer, to give you a different perspective, because it's what I call when you get Guantanamo yeah. Bayed. Yeah. When you listen to a track constantly, 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 you believe your own hype. Mm -hmm. And if you have someone else listen to it, that's really good. Um, and I was really lucky to work with probably one of the best techno mastering engineers that ever existed, and that was Nils in the UK. Right. Yeah, yeah uh, exchange. Who sadly, yeah, who sadly yeah. passed away. And I would enjoy our session sitting there and learning from him, watching him, asking him questions, and him always replying with a smile while he's doing something. Yeah. Uh, so I would learn from him, and then I can do uh, a, uh, a rough master or even a finish master. Yeah. But what I do is I do a finished track with maybe about 6 to 8 dB of headroom, leaving a top and a tail so that the engineer can actually hear what noise I've got in the studio and how it's working. And then I also do a rough master, and I say, this is how I envision it to be sound but more polished. Yeah, like an example master, yeah. Exactly. I sometimes do that as well, yeah. That's really important, I think, uh, because it's too easy now. I mean, you've got this horrible lander uh, thing, which I think just puts it through an L2. I don't know what it does. Have um, you tried it? No, I won't. They asked me at the beginning. I, no, no, okay. no, no, no. I want humans to be involved still. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't know if it's any good or any bad, but I've maybe people in the comments can, can if, if anybody has experience. <laughs> 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 but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad, but I, I agree. You know, you should. It should be something that is done by somebody who has uh, really good ears instead of just making shit loud. You know, with a fresh yeah. perspective. Yeah, with a, with a fresh perspective, and also if you've done an album, you want someone to actually hear all the different time moments and actually make it sound really that it actually all fits together. And that's that's an art form. That's mm. really an art. Yeah, form. I mean like. Carol just have King. everything sit in proportion. Yeah, that's very important, yeah. actually, for the listening experience, yeah. And also the, the, the actual tracks when they go together. I mean, Carol King, I think, spent nine months putting her album together so that all the tracks made sense in the right order. I think that's mm. quite a long time, but I think it's an important thing to do. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, all the effects stuff, uh, I used to have, I think I see in the back, it's a very poor thing sometimes, but I think I see in the back you have some even tights. Am I right or wrong, Joachim? Me? Yeah. 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 But, uh, H3000, is it? Over there. I always is get confused. Is it an H3000? Oh, I love uh, I've, got, I've got the 4000 and the 8000. Yeah. Wow. Really? Because I used to have the, uh, the Orville, which I absolutely adored. Mm. But then, and I also had a Brycasty, uh, Reverb and Lexicons and stuff like that. But the thing is, if you went through MIDI to change everything in the same way that you can do in the track, you would end up with some sort of zipper noise. It was never very convincing. So actually, I got rid of all my effects, and everything is in the box, and it's so much better. And sound toys rock. Right, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, but there is something about the the eventides though, because they they can be uh, like you said, they can be tweaked by by MIDI, you know, so you can actually use them as an as an instrument. Yeah. Uh, you can even sequence some parts of it, so it's it's more like a for me it's more because the the structure is is um in the back end it's it's basically modular effect processor you know so you can make your own sort of chains and stuff uh i haven't i haven't done it for a while but i used to do it a lot you know and making my own presets which are still in there um, the first the first type that i saw was at rns and then i oh. discovered how they did like hercules seven ways to jack and i was like that's the voice i want <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's I don't know. It's there's something about these things. I don't. I don't. I haven't heard in plugins. Maybe I'm listening to the wrong plugins. But um, you know, there's this inst instant shine and a richness to to the sound when you run something through it. You know, it's a, it's a really makes everything sound really expensive. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and sound design. And Eventide also do a thing called avionics because I used to learn how to. Yeah, fly yeah, yeah. They, they built they built uh, um, air air uh, navigation equipment yeah. and and effect processors. There's some says something about the company. That's the shit. That's I, want awesome. I, I don't want a Behringer <laughs> fucking avionics thing yeah. going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so so Brian and, and Jess, what are your what are your favorite sort of compressors, or do you have like go tos that uh, you want for a sound? Jess, any you want to go first? Go first, Ryan. Oh, um, I, I really like the uh, FabFilter family. I use that that filter a lot. Um, I learned that from Chris. Chris leaving taught me this because if you know Chris's mixes, they all it's like a, you got this low frequency that this filter that comes in and out of sounds like slowly, and it's really warm. And it's it, the FabFilter. And, and um, you mean the Simplon, the Simplon uh, FabFilter. Oh, uh, it's like a, like That's just a like a Pro Q yeah. three or whatever version they're on now. Oh, that one, yeah, okay. And you just automate it, and it just it it's kind of nice because you get all those frequencies on both. You get all the in in between frequencies, and you find it, and you can lock it in, or you can have it move. But uh, that's that's like probably my favorite filter. I like I like everything that Fab Filter. Um, is that the name of the company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like everything that they make. They're like it's real, uh, really nice sound. Otherwise. I'm happy with a lot of the uh, Logic native um, filters and effects and stuff. Um, the space delay, I love that. Space echo. Um, uh, what else? Can yeah, I I, I kind of got away from native instruments. I, I don't use. I, I use like um, some of this granular synth stuff, but for for effects, no. You were heavily intonated when I first met you in the studio. Yeah, I was like reactor. I was a reactor person, and then I was, you know, they have all these like uh, programmable patches and user patches and stuff. But I, I ended up becoming more comfortable with the Logic ES2 synth, and I probably make ninety percent of my sounds in that in that in that synth. Which is. Yeah, as Brian, I'm a really big fan of the fab filters, um, especially the the EQ or the multiband compressor, the Timeless, the Saturn, and hardware like uh, I just have the Terra Echo from Boss, which is really spacey, really trippy, and the Memory Man. That's all I have in hardware. I'm not a big fan of pedals, to be honest. So. And who here likes to? 
sidechain compress or EQ. That was a thing. I remember like when we were back in the day, Dave, when uh, we were when I was in motor and doing gigs with you and the side chaining was like those electro days. It was like everything was side chained to hell. <laughs> and that was like a sound, you know, justice, all that stuff. It was like it became a sound. And uh, I remember I, I remember side chaining everything to the kick drum. And I don't do it anymore so much. Yeah. <laughs> that phase kind of came over. Is that a yeah. curse word for you, uh, Dave, side chaining? Yeah. When the, whenever <laughs> I teach people, it's like, please don't side chain. Yeah. Like, well, unless you know maybe, what you're doing. Maybe 2% of the time you can side chain. A little bit yeah. if you need to pull don't back. Side chain, yeah. Don't side chain the fuck out of everything so it sounds yeah. like an asthmatic walrus. <laughs> yeah. Just so the kick can cut through. Yeah. I understand you pull it a little bit, but it became. Just learn to EQ. Learn yeah. to EQ. Because yeah. EQ is like the most powerful tool. It is. But not a lot of people know how to EQ. I mean, it's, it's an art form in itself. And. Um, that's yeah. That's difficult. EQ is where it's at. I would even say, I would, I would say learn to level because before you you know level, level <laughs> that's yeah. even one step one step back from EQing. Yeah. <laughs> no, seriously. No, um, no, I, I agree. I've seen people talk about everything and everything at eleven. Just turn everything up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean the the, the most basic th- um, uh, techniques are still the most. Uh, difficult to master, you know, like uh, yeah. leveling and EQing is actually, uh, you can go a million ways addressing a problem, you know, or not a million ways, but you can get, you can, you can try, uh, there are so many ways of using EQ, you know, like uh, boosting, dipping, uh, getting things sort of uh, unclutter things uh, by using EQ. There's, there's so many things you can do with it. You can fuck things up really, really, really bad if you use it in, yeah. in the wrong way. Because every sound is competing with each other, and they have a full frequency. And you ha- you have to give a sound a certain uh, band. Yeah, yeah, you can't. Not every sound has to have the whole fre- EQ frequency. So you have yeah. to learn how to carve out the right sound for each sample. So they don't. They're not competing with each other. That's like yeah, a, that's, that's a difficult. EQ is the real sex job of this life. <laughs> is it? Yeah, it's the most beautiful. If you get everything communicating to each other, right. It's the- the most beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. Uh, and I love it. And I think it's important to actually have a good set of ears, um, obviously, um, to have um, speakers that you know and trust um, set up in a, in a, in a good way, uh, really, really important. And headphones that you only use really for stereo positioning unless you live in a flat and you can't listen to music on speakers properly. Right. Um, And then also uh, to get, and it's really cheap now, to get really good visual analytical software because it helps you memorize where the frequencies are by seeing them and then attaching it to to your memory uh, when you hear them. So, I mean, like, for example, SPL, which I think is actually a really underrated uh company um sadly because i think some of their stuff looks a little bit like the old behringer clark technic stuff with silver and black um but they're a really really good company and also they do some cool plugins and there's one called um plugin alliance called spl hawkeye um and that's a very good analytical tool if you don't get a dk audio thing or even behringer uh, make something through tc electronic uh, which is like 200 euros and you can put it on a plug-in. It's an actual physical meter and it will teach you about stereo. It'll teach you about phase. 
Um, especially if you're living in the flat and you can't play music loud enough to actually hear what's going on or you don't have a phase switch or a mono switch. Um, and it will teach you everything about how it is. Uh, uh, fast Fourier transformation so you can see the frequencies. If you boost up the dB of the meter, you can actually see how the frequency overlaps and goes down, where the transient of the kick drum is, if you want to move that in a slight different way, if you want to allow the bass line through or you want the bass drum to come through, it shows you the frequencies, and it's a really valid tool. And I think that if more people could learn how to EQ, then we would be in a much happier situation with uh, music production. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, somehow I never really got into the visual things, you know. Um, I do check that. I mean, most of the, the plugins we discussed, like the, the Fab Filters or even the native plugins in, in uh, Ableton or Logic, they have a visualization or, 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 you know, you, you, can, you can switch it on at least to kind of show you what, what's going on. And I use that, you know, when it's there, I'll, I'll, I'll have a look. But, um, yeah, I mostly rely on... Um, how how things sit together you know that's something even though you can you can become really scientific about um how an individual sound should be acute um eventually what you're after is to have it sit well with the other ones so uh, sometimes that even means that you have to do things which are uh, probably not very scientific like leave something in like the 20 hertz range uh, you know going even though it's um, it's taking up space and and bandwidth, you know, sometimes it just um, adds that little thing to glue it to something else that's going on. You know, it, I don't know. It's um, I I much rather rely on 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 those things. You know, how does it, how do things level out together, and how how do things sit together? You know, that's the most important thing for me. Yeah, yeah. at least. Yeah, we 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 often get questions what people like us mean by. Um, having things sit together, (laughs) sit well together. I would say, you know, it's, it is, um, you know, if, if everything sounds um, in the right proportion and if everything is helping it, all other things in, in such a way that everything uh, does its job in, in the best possible way. And if it, if it sounds like uh, a coherent um, final thing, you know, that is probably when, things sit well together <laughs> yeah yeah if nothing is sticking out or or ruining the, the obscuring things or uh uh i don't know or yeah sticking out being harsh or painful or well, sometimes it's good to have that dynamic of something that's that's too loud that's oh great. yeah but that's dynamics that's that but, doesn't mean that it doesn't yeah. sit well with the other things you know um, yeah um you get ear fatigue uh, if everything is competing with each other there's yeah. too many frequencies you get ear fatigue you want to be able to like listen to something loud without hurting your ears, and that oh, the, yeah. art, the art of that is in the it's like you said it's in the levels and the EQ. So another question: whether or not you agree, all of us here are actually ninety five percent in the box. And what I mean by that is that all our sound sources are coming out either in the computer or via a line. Who here uses microphones? Yeah, sometimes. What do you use them for? Uh, oh, wow. To, um, yeah, you go first then. Um, no, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so, I mean, the first thing you think of is like you're going to use it for a vocal, but I see where you're going. I don't know. I mean, I have sampled. I One time I sampled myself banging a fork on a pizza cutter, and I got these metallic sounds. 
And uh, I'll do that sometime, metallic stuff. But I haven't done that in a while. I, I miss the days when you could sample something and you could go across a sampler and hear all the different pitches. And, you uh, can still do that. I, you can, but uh, and back in the, back in the day, that's all you could do. And you, you just, but it had that anti-aliasing filter, which sounded yeah. really interesting when you fucked it up on a, a third of an octave or something. Exactly, exactly. So, get right. Samplex. It's a good plugin. You can get what, that what's it called? Samplex. Samplex. Okay. S a m p l e x. Yeah, yeah. Jess, what do you record on vocals? Uh, on microphones, vocals, and I'm also sampling sounds like uh, like Brian. Also, some metallic stuff, or sometimes it's just really random. Something falls down, or some sounds emerge. I was like, okay, maybe I could use that. So I have a few microphones for that purpose. I will yeah. encourage people to not try not to use presets. I think the the more you can spend time on making your own sounds, the more rewarding it is. I. People yeah, not only rewarding, but it, it'll distinguish your your yeah. your thing uh, by by miles. You know, instead of yeah. um, you know, you can flip presets all day and and uh, you know find a good sound. But if you if you layer it with something that you've that you've sampled yourself or um, or you mic it and and you know by just micing your speakers or your room yeah. and put it back in, you know, that makes a hell of a lot of difference in uh, in how you know how unique you can make something sound, you know? Yeah. That's, that's pretty much all I use it for. You know, I just, I, I sometimes uh, have mics open while I'm recording and it just, whatever happens in the room just gets recorded with it. And uh, I can, because I multi-track it, I can delete it, but yeah, uh, but it's still there, you know? And, and sometimes I even purposely we've, I've done a, a project here with um, Dave function. And uh, that was in the beginning when when the room was still more empty and the the airlocks were all empty, which there are two like concrete airlocks on, on either side of the room, and we put speakers in there and and mic the the room, which was a, a massive reverb, you know, like a really? pure pure concrete uh, yeah, yeah, spanking, yeah. you know. <laughs> and we just we just played the drum machines and and uh, really loud into that room and, and yeah. just use that use that as a reverb, and it yeah. sounds it's actually there's no way you can get that kind of reverb with a modeled reverb or uh, it, it does sound different, you know? It sounds more like a, a, a drum machine in a basement. <laughs> try even tied black hole, actually. It's pretty, it's pretty funky. It's pretty you mean fun. the pedal? Uh, they, they have a plug-in version too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got the pedal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's cool. Really yeah. Yeah. Altiverb uh, is nice too. Sorry? Altiverb, yeah. Yeah, Altiverb. Yeah. I got two questions from store. Uh, one was about um, the compressor, uh, which was uh, the C2 thing. Um, I use that mostly on high percussion, sometimes synth line. If I use it on synth line, I use the crush function because it does some weird fuck ups to transients. And then what's the weirdest, this will make you laugh, what's the weirdest thing that I've ever used uh -huh. a microphone for? Um, so the weirdest thing that I've ever used a microphone for is, I remember back in the day when we had magazines, not the internet, you'd find out how things were recorded. And I remember Mark Moore from S-Express saying that he used a spray uh, for a hi-hat. Oh, yeah. I thought, pretty cool. Oh, wow. So I thought, I'm going to do my little twist on that, and I'm going to use my asthma inhaler for a <laughs> hi-hat as well. But I sprayed it into the microphone, fucked up the microphone, and didn't get a hi-hat at all. So that's the weirdest <laughs> thing I've ever done on a microphone. That was um, a long time ago. <laughs> 
Okay, I was. I thought you were going to say that was the last thing it ever recorded, but I didn't <laughs> even get it. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I mean, the yeah, there's like loads of studio accidents I can tell you about, but uh, yeah, I've, I've ruined things in my day as well. <laughs> well what's the like weirdest a, thing you've ever microphoned? The weirdest, uh, weirdest thing. Uh, 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 me, I don't know. Weird, I don't know. Uh, yeah, what's weird? I mean, anything that makes sounds in anything that you can pick up with a microphone, you know, is um, and is useful is fine, right? I've never stuck in, into weird places or anything. It's just, uh, <laughs> I, know. I know actually, if if Aid Fenton is watching, uh, I seem to remember that he didn't sample so much, um, but recorded with the microphone. This is really freaky. If I remember correctly, about 15 years ago, he recorded in his then house in, I think it's Nottingham, which is apparently the best city in the world. It's not. Um, and he recorded in Nottingham the night, just the night in his house. And maybe I got this wrong, but he's definitely the kind of guy that would do this kind of weird shit. So he just recorded the night time in his house with a microphone. Okay. And then he played it back at half speed and heard the weirdest shit possible. <laughs> Really strange, ghostly shit, like uh, seance board stuff. Right, right. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I mean, if you play anything slow, you'll discover uh, lots of lots of things. You know, no matter what recording it is, you know, and even if you go like a fourth, a quarter of the speed, or even slower, you know, the slower you get, especially with tape. You know, right. with digital, it gets grainy and shit. But if you if you play tape really, really slow. You discover, you keep discovering, sort of micro things and and uh, and really really strange stuff. You know, um, actually, and nice to to as a sound design uh, technique. You know, just to yeah. record random shit and then just on tape oh, and then play it slow it down really really slow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, not even a half speed, but actually really really slow. You know, right, right. <laughs> what was yeah. the a piece of equipment or software that got each one of you? into actually i want to do this what was the inspirational thing that actually made it exciting feasible and possible that you want to make music turn okay okay apart from, apart from djing right well i mean i started out as a you know as a hip-hop dj so i that was my instrument but yes after that it was a tape you know a reel to reel and after that uh drum machines you know um so not nothing synth like or that synth came since came later you know I had a um yeah tape and drum machines and i made loops with the tapes you know and then you know stack you know re-record the the loops on cassette and bounce it back and then sort of overdub that was the um it's sort of very time consuming way of my first <laughs> recordings yeah. my, my dad's organ was the first thing and oh, yeah? a tape machine i used to record all the drum machine things that had all these like weird I used to record those play them backwards and then record organ sounds on top of it play that backwards again and then overdub and I was about 10 at the time wow did you, are you do you still have those recordings no i have a few tapes that are left uh, the do you remember the uh, the tiac 52s that look like miniature reel to reels yeah yeah i have a few yeah. of those that i put together some things on like uh todd terry mega mixes uh on four track 
Um, but no, I don't have anything like that. And what about you guys? What were the first machines that brought you into this realm that we love? Brian, Jess? For me, it'd be, the, it'd be the sampler, but not in yeah. a Beastie Boys way, but in a, the sampler changed my life because I could copy, I could, I could sample CD. I used to sample like, um, yeah, all my favorite bands. I, I sample the kick drum from the opening of a Depeche Mode song or whatever. Um, so and I what was your first sampler? It was it's Ensonic EPS or the Mirage? EP, no, it was EPS 32. No, 16. It was 16. You 16 push bit. Bastard. You push bastard. Yeah, the 16 <laughs> bit. Not bad as a first sampler. Yeah. No, really not yeah. bad. I had the EPS two it had two megabyte, right? Yes. <laughs> and it cost a ridiculous amount of money to get an extra two megabyte cartridge at the back. Oh, I remember, yeah. I just used eight channels and I, I just did the most I could with those two megabytes, but that w- that was amazing. Samplers. But you learn about Nyquist theory and truncation to the, the core of your life. So you would sample a yeah. bass drum at 22 because you didn't need it at uh, Oh, uh, yeah. 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 You would truncate a hi-hat to within an inch of its life. You don't waste any memory, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Jess, what was your first machine or software? Uh, drum machine, for sure, TR8. Okay. And what you were making beats and you wanted to add more stuff to it or? Uh, yeah, I was basically just making beats with that. Rhythms and just trying things. Sorry? You still have the recordings of your first beats? Oh. Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I do, but I don't have uh, access to this external disc because at some point it just gave up. So I have to oh. yeah, repair it first. But it's there lying dormant. Do you, do you guys get... A- introspective over this period like I, I found myself going back to like the first electronic music i ever made in like um I, i've taken me 20 years to listen to what i used to do in the 90s but for the first time i went back to it and it's like um you know i was finally ready after 20 years to listen to what i was doing with a sampler in the 90s do you and dave are you what what did you think what was the experience listening my back experience to it? was like that shit's cool. You know, I should, I should do that again. <laughs> I, I was onto something and then I got, I went off and did this thing, but mm. I, I, I could appreciate, uh, you know, the, the first intention, you know, I, I don't listen back that much. Normally what happens is I'll have a friend that might play some stuff in the background. I think, Oh, that was actually okay. I did all right with that. Yeah. Um, I don't actively seek listening to my own. It's hard. Music. It's hard. I know it's really hard. It, it doesn't seem to serve a purpose. Um, and the only introspect that I had was that, wow, I've spent a lot of time in airports in the last 30 years (laughs) and I really still don't miss it at all. Um, and for the first, actually, this is a really important point for the first time, I think in my career, I'm not sure if this is going to bring up great music or not that people will love. I mean, I feel really proud of what we've been doing because I've been working with Matilde. But for the first time in my career, I haven't had the whole issue of making music in between gigs and yeah, being tired. Nice. That, that's amazing, yeah. And it felt it felt like such a luxury. Yeah. Uh, and so a have, you, have you never have you never taken breaks then, like uh, recording breaks, or or uh, have you been really touring every weekend for the last, or have you taken weekends off? Or I've, I've taken uh, so. I had the car accident in Serbia from uh, exit and that really fucked me up a little bit. And I said, okay, I need to take time off. Right. 
because I'm not listening to what my inner self is trying to tell me. Yeah. And I did for a while, and then I didn't. And then I had what I believe was Corona like about a year and a half ago or two years ago now because they discovered that Corona has been around since 2012 yeah. in Chinese, yeah. Chinese minds. Yeah. And I had pneumonia. And it's the sickest I've ever been. And I thought, okay, I need to take some time off. And then I was back on the road again. And I just didn't listen. I, I eventually started taking some time off. So I'd say to my agent, who, who's been my agent for 21 years, um, I want to take a weekend off uh, a month. But then, of course, in the summer, you then think, well, I might as well just do these summer gigs because they're really fun. Um, and then so you lose that. And then I take uh, historically I've taken January off now for quite some years. But then I'm always fucking sick because like, I'm, I'm exhausted from the year before. And then I'm just like lying there sick and I'm, OK, I'm ready to go back again. And I have tried to take some time off for studio work, but it never really worked because it takes me a little bit of time to warm up into the whole procedure of wanting to make music so i'll sit in my studio sometimes and just update the shit out of everything so it's completely updated and procrastinate or watch dave pensado and procrastinate <laughs> or watch sound yeah, on sound yeah. and procrastinate and then before i know it two weeks has gone i don't know what the fuck happened i'm back on the road again mm. and this is the first time i've actually managed to get sleep um for like a few months get rid of all the the fatigue and tiredness out of my system and then went through a phase of procrastination watching Dave Pensado. And then, <laughs> fuck it, I'm ready for this now. I want to do this. And I'm feeling it. And this is the first time I felt I've been in the studio where I've actually had the headspace to really become, hopefully, a maestro within Logic, at least up to the level of Aid Fenton, who I consider to be a maestro in Logic, and actually really get intricate at every single detail in the same way that I used to be when I was like opening machines up with system exclusive and really trying to get the most out of machines with system exclusive and programming those codes in there to get everything out on Cubase on an Atari. And I'm starting to feel that I'm now back there again. And it feels like the biggest fucking liberation that's ever been given to me. That Maybe sounds great, man. Yeah. That sounds really great. Uh, sounds yeah. like you're really happy um, in, in your current um, flow with, yeah. with music. That's great. So, so, Tell me, how do you? What is what is the process with working with um, a cellist, right? It is or a violinist. 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 To, okay. be honest, to be honest, let's just be polite and call her a fucking polymath, um, because she's uh, pitch perfect. Um, she can um, uh, play piano. Uh, I could give her a bass guitar. She can tune it and play it. Um, violin. Um, probably give her a fucking saxophone, and she can play it with a violin. I mean, she's seriously musical. She went to um, Sorbonne. She went to the Royal College of Music. Um, it's, it's really amazing to see a non-electrical performance of music, just like boom, 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 boom. Yeah. But what's interesting is when you work with a real musician, um, especially one that doesn't require amplification, <laughs> especially yeah. on something that's so shrill as a violin, you hear them practicing all the time. Yeah, And you can't escape from it. And that's how they get to where they're getting. So we did a piece for uh, La Grande Cheque, uh, Carmina Burana. If I ever hear that piece of music again, at least for the next years, I'm going to throttle someone because it's just <laughs> too much to bear. But working with someone like that, it really changes the way that you relate to music. And she's learning logic and she's doing really well with learning logic. And now she can sit in the machine and do 
not basic stuff, but above basic stuff and, and do really good things. It's, it's amazing. It, and also from, because I worked in a classical music shop when I grew up, uh, my first techno experience was actually Gustav Holst, the Planet Suite. When I was 12, I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. The Planet Suite is so techno. Um, and then I was into Tamita, um, of course, mm. uh, with Debussy. Uh, and then I was into Sarte uh, before, you know, Tiestical and all those people did their nasty things with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And lots of other classical pieces of music. So I already had that little bit within me of, of, of appreciation. But then when you work in this environment, it's, it's, a, it's a new environment. And actually the professionality is different as well. When I was working on this TV program, the professionality is, is, is the next level stuff. Um, so it's, so, so tell, tell me about the roles because you're, you're talking about the, um, the violinist, but what, what is your part? What, what, what does your part consist of? Okay. So, uh, Le Grand de Chequier aside, because that was a public performance and also, uh, Charles de Gaulle aside, um, I'm sort of coming up with a vision, the musical vision of where I want it to go. She's trusting me with her violin Uh, which is 120-year-old, beautiful piece of uh, wood and, and soul. And she's trusting me with that. And we're talking together and say, like, for example, I'm doing a project which is a little bit more Nordic in theme tune, uh, in theme. And sometimes she'll go more, because she plays at La Scala, she'll go a little bit more Mediterranean. I say, well, that's a little bit too Mediterranean. It's a bit too much flourish in the way. I'm looking for more legato, more emotion, more fragility. And she'll adapt and she'll move to that. So she's trusting me with the vision of the project. Mm. And she's trusting me with the electronic encapsulation of this. Um, but then she also has a lot to say. And she's adding some music herself digitally, uh, not just violin. And so we sort of swap roles. And then we're sitting there and we're listening. And I'm like playing with plugins. I'm getting something sounding really, really interesting. She, oh, oh, yeah. And we both feel the same thing. And then we'll play with another plugin. It's like, both go, no, at the same time. So it's really symbiotic in a really interesting way. Um, I have worked only once before in the studio with someone that was uh, Jones, Jonas. And again, that was symbiotic, but purely in an electronic way. So this is, it's really interesting. It's like, we wouldn't have had the time to do this if the world didn't stop still, because she'd be traveling around the world. Yeah, yeah. I'd be traveling around the world. We'd have a week or so to put something together and it just wouldn't be the same. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's wonderful working with other people, and you know, uh, even if they're from the same discipline uh, or a similar discipline, but um, uh, you always find common ground. You you always find a way to communicate. You know, no matter how different the music is that that each of the individuals are making when they do stuff by themselves. You know, um, it's funny how that works. You know, there is sort of this um, uh, language which is not vocal but still a very pure way of communication you know very yeah. very true very um um intuitive yeah. way of communicating I'm, i'm passionate yeah yeah it's wonderful i love to i love collaborating <laughs> it's amazing anyone anyone else working with other people right now i i like to work with people who do something better than i do you know you like you, you want to <laughs> To elevate your music, you you want to choose someone who can do something better than you can. That's why I, I started working with like other singers because I got uh, got bored with the techno vocal. It's fun to do the grunty techno vocal, but to actually work with like <laughs> yeah, to work with like um, Zola Jesus, who's like an opera vocalist. Opera vocals and techno and 
little few a little melody going on. It's like it's it's that that's what excites me is working with people who do things that I can't do. Otherwise, otherwise I'll just do it myself. But it's it's fun to collaborate with you know people who bring something that you're not able to do. So it's you, you should you should seek that out. You really should. Collaboration is amazing. It's so easy to get inside your head and just do everything, but it's. I would say I would say I find something uh, in in every person uh, that teaches me something or yeah like you said uh, like you say you you work with people who are better in something than yourself somebody's always better at something than yourself yeah. you know or has a different approach or um, uh, opens up your opens your mind to certain processes or uh, approaches. Um, so I say I, I would I, I don't I have never ever done any collaboration which uh, was worthless to me. You know, it's, right. there's always a value in it. Always, sure, yeah. Jesse, you working with anyone? Uh, yeah, I just recently worked with uh, two people. One is uh, from Spain. It's called Vibrations of Gravity, and one is Temudo. You probably know him. He's from Portugal. And cool. yeah, gonna release uh, both EPs. We work together uh, on my label soon. Are you working together physically, or working together sending your ideas back physically? Okay. Physically, we were quite lucky, as you just said, with uh, Corona. We had the the time and the chance to do that, and it was quite spontaneous, to be honest. So I think if not Corona, maybe this would have not happened, or yet, yeah. at least. Yeah. So yeah, I'm really really happy about that too. So everyone's been had, had like a creative uh, streak with the uh, COVID lockdown. I had four months of suntan time, yeah. which is amazing. Didn't have to go anywhere expensive or fly on a plane. It was happening here in Amsterdam, and actually, it was happening in Rotterdam. I was quite uh, a, quite a fervent visitor with my camera down there over the summer. Um, but uh, then, for the last three months, it's been complete studio, yeah, orgasm time. Like yeah. seriously, like it's been so. It's, it's nice to wake up and you don't know what day of the week it is, and you're like, "Let's make yeah. music." That's how it used and to people be. Say, you know? People was, say, "What are you doing this weekend?" It's like, "Oh, is it weekend?" Yeah, what's like, <laughs> oh, the airport again? And yeah, you, you go to a market now, and you can do your shopping the same time as everyone else. For some reason, I don't know, but it's still nice. And then mm -hmm. uh, you start working. Oh, yeah, that's what, one thing I wanted to ask for, because obviously, uh, like Joachim, you're sort of like in, in a casino where there's no natural light whatsoever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and probably having fresh air pumped in as well. Um, do you actually, because I, when I first started making music, I was gitmoing myself all the time, listening to music for like 18 hours and going to sleep practically on what I was doing. Now I'm really firmly of the opinion that I really like to wake up at sort of like seven thirty, eight o'clock, yeah. um, uh, have breakfast, have a fresh juice, look after myself, and then head off to the studio about ten, ten thirty, eleven o'clock. Stay in the studio till maybe six or seven o'clock, and then call it a day unless it's a finishing off a project. Do you, are you guys sort of office hours, or do you actually like to? I think I, I reckon that Jess is going to be complete nighttime. Um, because I think she's younger than all of us. Well, definitely younger than all of us. I think you're going to be a complete nighttime person. What what time do you guys work, Jess? When do you actually do your best work for making music? Oh, it's very unspecific. Uh, nighttime works well. I'm very creative at night times, but I'm also very creative in the mornings. So, yeah, I start quite late in the evening, and I finish around in the morning. <laughs> 
Brian? I, I do my best work at about uh, 10, 35 a.m. It's like after a couple hours, a couple cups of coffee, and then I, I do my most meticulous, you know, designing sounds and the kick drum and all wow. that. But I have to say, when I went and worked with Yoakum, we, we start in the afternoon, and we would work all night. And I have, you know, like I used to do that when I was a kid, and uh, I kind of, that was, was a fun, that was a fun time. But I'm more of a, I, I work best with coffee during the daytime. I'm in office hours, but having said that, the stuff I did with Yoakum in the middle of the night um, was it's it's nice. I like. I think I think that that happened because when you got here, you yeah. got a massive delay, and we got stuck in traffic. So we <laughs> we we started the first day. We started in a, on a very uh, like I think oh yeah, we were delayed dinner or something. Yeah. yeah, and then and then we were both so eager to get something going that we that we made it a long night, and then you know the next day became a a, a you know a late morning you know that stuff yeah. like that. But, yeah. but usually i i keep i keep um uh office hours i would say yeah. but i do work in the evenings you know yeah. when, I, when i do collaboration or when i work some, on anything you know it's during the day um but it bleeds into the evening and night you know it depends yeah. if i don't want to stop i don't stop you know um, snacks and snacks do you bring food into the studio or do you go out for no, lunch I, I go i go back home i live around the corner i i, I have yeah sometimes i get food here but uh usually when when it's pretty yeah while producing music it's um uh, usually um yeah that's an, it happens but it's an exception you know usually it's um it's pretty structured yeah. Yeah. and do you finish if you're near to finishing off a track and it's it's almost oh mind you you're you're committed you have to actually go straight from beginning to end and that's it but okay, for for the other people, uh, do you actually the track's almost finished? I'm going to do it tomorrow. Finish it off tomorrow. Does anyone do that or not? I think it's I think it's so important to take a, to go back with fresh ears the next day. And what about a weekend break? Is that even better? So like this track is almost finished. It's Friday. Fuck it, I'm going to do this on Monday. I don't know if what you yes. do on a Friday night would sound good on a Monday, but. <laughs> But I, I definitely, I, I do believe in the t in taking a taking a day break before you finish something. I would always suggest not doing something in one day personally, because your perspective changes, and you'll you'll have better ideas the next day. In my point, in my opinion, but and Jess, yeah, I think it's very important to do that because it is a tired after a while. So it's always a good advice to take at least one night or one day off, and then go back again. I feel so sad for you, actually, because you've been standing up for two hours, right? Uh, no, why do you feel sad? It's really healthy for the back. <laughs> actually, it, she's doing it right. That's how we should all do it. <laughs> but it's funny you say that. It's most it's the, the thing people say most when they come to my studio. It's like, okay, how about, where do you sit? Like, do you have a chair? And I say, no, because I'm making dance music, so I cannot yeah. sit. It's like, you know, <laughs> and it's super unhealthy to sit, so I kind of used to do that. Wow, that's great. Okay, people. Well, we've we've been talking for longer than two hours, which is great. I mean, I don't want to spoil it or or cut it off, but we. Um, uh, I would say let's give the people who are watching, if there is anyone watching still, uh, a last chance to uh, to ask something or to say something, and otherwise we'll uh, we'll get into the the plug round. Give everybody a chance to um, to promote or say something <laughs> about what where they can find where people can find your music or what do you do what you are doing or any releases remixes projects whatever so if there's anybody 
with a question. This is your chance. Here we go. Oh, great chat. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Still watching. Oh. <laughs> That's good. People are still here. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's full on. <laughs> um, Oh, oh, that's a peer protection. Point. Good, good. Yeah, Very good, good one. Uh, so, sounds Actually, like Tamara is asking uh, about hearing protection. So, uh, you want to go first, Dave? Because you were. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hi, Tamara. Hope you're well in Berlin. Um, so, yeah, ear protection is really, really good because it's very easy to get wrapped up in the enjoyment and adrenaline of the track, especially if you're working on bass. You want to pump the shit out of it. Yeah. And, you know, even in my old car, I had 128 or 132 decibels just in my car. You realize that it's not clever it's anymore. <laughs> um, although I will say that when I did uh, Surrender Life uh, Fest, I did actually enjoy having tinnitus the next day because I hadn't had that for ages. And it felt like I was actually at a gig and that was good. But you do really have to take good care of your ears. And again, um, have different speakers and monitors. Um, sometimes it's really good to monitor on small speakers just for compatibility anyway. Yeah. Um, and just make sure that you don't be ridiculous with your levels. Um, well, you can get things, you can get things from, from the sound when you are playing it loud, but you can also get very important clues about the sound when you're playing very low, you know? So I think yeah, I, I do both and I switch all the time. I never yeah. play loud for longer than, I don't know, maybe a few Ten minutes. minutes. It's, I'm yeah. changing it all the time, changing the level all the time. Yeah. It's important and, and to have a good monitoring system with a uh, volume switch where you can see what the volume is mm. um, um, because otherwise you, you're not sure. Um, never have your monitors, if they're active, clip red because that's bad for them anyway, but it also says, hey, rustikai, you know? It's like you, you're way too, you're way too uh, much. Um, headphones, you have to be really, really careful of. I mean, Joachim uh, is wearing, I believe, open headphones, which are much healthier for your ears. Uh, but closed headphones are actually very, very good for stereo um, um, uh, placement. Uh, but don't listen to headphones too much until it's at the final mix stage uh, because they give you a false sense of security and they're also much louder than you can believe. Um, yeah. So just be very, very careful and allow yourself to have a blast. Headphones um, headphones also have a different way of uh, playing transients than uh, than speakers because you don't get the, the room uh, yeah, tail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You tend to put put like very short sounds way louder than than, than they should be. That's interesting. You, I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's my experience anyway. I don't know if that's true for everybody, but um, yeah, short sounds with no reverb. You know, very short transient sound. Uh, you tend to misjudge them um, on headphones. Yeah. Or I I do anyway. <laughs> I mean, I I, I like a, I like a room to have a little bit of a. A room vibe, you know, rather than a completely scientifically dead room. I, I, I could. I have, no, I have no treatment. No treatment. I don't believe in treatment at all. Yeah. I think it. It only makes sense if you have many, many people working there, or a record executive, or a band behind you, and you need the same sound everywhere. That makes sense. The other mm. thing I like to do is listen, not in the stereo field sometimes, but subconsciously in the background to see how it sounds like most people would listen to. Yeah. Music. Yeah. That's really important too. Yeah, for a room, I think it just should be should have a pleasant uh, and sort of honest sound. Uh, and like you said, you need to know your system really well. But um, I, I mean, the the studio is the place where you are you are creating, and you have to feel comfortable creating. You know, that's that's the most important thing about 
a studio monitoring system. And then you can, re you can get really scientific if you have good monitors and they, they tell you the, uh, the honest truth about what's going on. That's, that's quite important. But at the same time, it needs to be something that is pleasant throughout uh, the time that you are um, working on your stuff and, and just writing it and stuff like that, you know? So it should be, should really do both. <laughs> Otto uh, asks for the best studio snacks and beverages. Well, matcha. <laughs> matcha is good. I like matcha. Black Keeps coffee. you awake. Black coffee and red wine. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I don't allow any drinks into the studio. I was going to say there, there, this, there are absolutely no rules in the studio, but you cannot have open bottles standing next no. to the gear. To always use the the screw, yeah, 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 on your on your bottle, and uh, exactly, yeah, that's it. <laughs> other other than that, no rules. <laughs> you don't you don't go for the Rotterdam herring all in one and bite the tail off thing. <laughs> Yeah, the herring. Well, I, it's not really Rotterdam thing, but uh, no, I th that would fucking make the studio smell, you know, herring. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, um, I think we should uh, we should go into the 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 last sort of plug round. Uh, anybody wants to um, tell people where you can where they can find your latest projects or promote anything or make people aware of anything you're doing, uh, Brian. Anything um, on your just, side? Just before COVID, the, the, the weeks before COVID, I did an EP for Alphanama and Wiedergaba. It's like a uh, label in Berlin. And that was 4-4 techno, like noisy. And then, and then COVID happened, and I hated 4-4 techno. <laughs> so then I, I started making an album of non-4-4 techno, which is going to be a new Black Asteroid album, which is what I'm mixing now. Oh, wicked. And then I also... Going back to where I started with the two-inch tape, I revisited this first project I did called Halo Black, and I'm re—I uh, guess making a compilation, remastering, and then putting things together. So I'm, I'm re-presenting this project with everything that I've learned. So that—that's going to be an album which I'll be releasing in a couple months. So I've yeah, basically those two projects right now. Awesome, Jess. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of coming uh, EPs. Uh, there's two Flash EPs on Flash recordings coming in Jan and February. And there's also two records coming on Luminal, which is my label. Uh, one with the um, artist I was mentioning, Vibrations of Gravity, and one with uh, Temudo. And yeah, that's it. And you can find this on my website. It's uh, blcklts.com and Facebook, Instagram, as usual. Awesome. And you, Dave, when can we see the results of your uh, collaboration? Well, first of all, I actually have a remix that's out uh, of uh, a track called T99. Um, Never heard of it. I've heard of T98, but I, I don't know this one. It's uh, Inflation. Uh, obviously, Inflation, yeah. you know. <laughs> so it's T99, which is funny because when it came out, when I was on XL back in uh, uh, the 90s, it wasn't a track that I actually really felt for, Anastasia. Yeah. Um, but actually, I, I sort of appreciated it from a distance. I think probably because everyone was playing it, and I was that guy that's, well, if they're playing it, I'm not yeah. playing it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still am, I think. Um, but actually, I sort of appreciated it, and I, I just made it into a breakbeat track. Uh, I had fun with it. Um, 
and that was that was cool um obviously i am working on uh, some new material um i think we aim to finish it because i think this this thing that we're not allowed to mention uh is going to go on for some time and i think we're going to finish it around may or june um we might be at the concert cabal uh here in amsterdam uh soon uh performing some different things um but that's going to be quite interesting and hopefully there'll be more people allowed to be there um socially distanced and all that stuff um what else uh, i'm still doing my radio shows uh white noise is almost at 800 editions now and i'm doing a um saga radio show which is everything that i love that's not techno um and can be country it can be punk it can be um synthesized by like Eve Marais um different things and yeah that's what I'm up to yeah i you, saw that I, i was looking i was looking up the the show actually today and uh, 860 something 783 or something like oh, that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway it was a, some huge number crazy man that's great that you've, you've kept on it so for such a long time yeah i think the last time i interviewed you in person was at i love techno um yeah it was ages ago yeah 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 awesome uh cool uh i think i'm gonna give one last shout out to the store hoodies this one oh, it's yeah. a black embroidered black logo. great yeah yeah, yeah we did we did the black embroidered t-shirts for for you real black asteroid sure. uh, back in the day it's yeah, the yeah, same yeah. same guy tegendraads the rotterdam embroidery right. wizard yeah, so yeah. we've we've done hoodies and uh, they're available on bandcamp and uh, uh they're pre-order only so you can uh, everybody who orders one before 11th of december will get one and after that it's uh Finito. So, um, and uh, other than that, um, yeah, we're still doing the Stay Home Sound System. This Sunday, we have a very special guest uh, doing a remote jam again instead of um, okay. the studio jam here. Is there and, latency for that? Uh, that's taken care of, but um, uh, it is, yeah, there's no latency. I mean, the, uh, yeah. So, um, It's not. I mean, the syncing is not not an issue um, anyway. But uh, um, yeah, it basically there's some off the shelf stuff going on. You know, you know, it's not nothing special. But it really feels like being in the same room, which is great. You know, it's um, um, yeah. It's I, I mean, you you know that it's it's not with a person in the same room. But once the first few minutes have gone, you know, it's uh, it feels like making music with. Uh, with a person in the same room basically so that one is uh, is uh, is coming up this sunday and um yeah other than that i would like to say the the patreon page is uh, is doing well um you can still get uh, some spots in the masterclass and i would encourage people to have a look at our discord server which is becoming a really really fun place to hang out it's uh, basically one big uh, uh, live forum with um Uh, audio music nerds uh, chatting about gear and <laughs> about music and everything. It's a really fun place to um, uh, to get connected to uh, like-minded people and people who are into making music. So have a look there. The link should be all be in the uh, uh, the comments description of the video everywhere. So have a look and um, thanks everybody for hanging out. Thanks Brian. Good to see Thank you, man. You. Yeah, man. Good to see you guys. Great to see you, Dave. And Dave, nice to I meet see you. you. Um, in June. Thank you. 
<laughs> nice to meet you, Jess. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for uh, being nice here. Nice to meet really you. Nice thanks for the invite. Yeah. So, um, yeah, thanks again. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out. Uh, have a nice evening. Ciao, ciao. Bye-bye. Do it. Do it. Do it.